We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams, and it is Kentucky week. Ah, Alan, Kentucky's been a thorn in Florida's mm. side. Mark Stoops is, is seemingly taking it to us. How do you feel about this week? I want to win pretty badly. It's weird because Kentucky was such an ass afterthought most of my life and we won like 30 something years in a row with a few close games here and there but some of the most like I guess frustrating losses have come against Kentucky the last couple years you know one during the Mullen era and then you know kind of the last two especially last year was such a kick in the groin after the highs of Utah so Florida needs this one we'll talk about it but yeah kind of a sneaky big game sneaky big game especially coming off of a a disappointing performance versus Charlotte we're going to break down the Charlotte game for you talk about the Kentucky game get you ready for everything that's going to be happening in college football this week as always if you like the content on this show follow us on social media sub to our YouTube channel for film reviews and become a patron on Patreon where you too can drop us a dono and become a donor our weekly shout-out to B-Red, who unfortunately could not prepare the document for us today, which means yours truly spent more time doing it. We and miss him. Carly, the commissioner, who did a great job, as always, weekly, preparing the film review, which will be out hopefully tonight, Monday night, uh, if definitely not before Tuesday morning. So, yeah, B-Red instrumental when he does not and cannot do the doc, and he doesn't have a volunteer basis, so I don't expect him to be able to always do it. Definitely adds a lot of time to my life. So be right. I missed you this week. <laughs> uh, as always, if you have not yet joined the GNFP Sammy or GNFP Java Discord threads, you can do so. Links are always in the show description. And if you don't have merch yet, check it out. It's fall officially. And I got to tell you, I've tried a lot of our merch out personally. And I actually think the hoodie is maybe my favorite. Mm. So if you're gearing up for that stuff, check out the hoodie. It's pretty smooth. All right. Lots of new donors this yeah, week. Yeah, welcome on Love in, everybody. This. Come on in. At the small donor level, we have Todd Bostick, Matt Tyndall, and Robert Manis. Welcome. Welcome into the fam. Large donors, Irving Roberts. Thank you, Irving. XL donors, Eddie Rojas, who comes in. <clears throat> Rojas, sorry, who, of course, a lot of you may know that name. Uh, involved with a lot of NIL stuff and 
was really excited about the Caleb Sturgis news. I think was actually openly campaigning to get Caleb <laughs> news involved. Yeah, news being, hey, Caleb should really be involved with Florida special teams, and Caleb. we'll talk about another, another. Maybe, maybe, maybe our energy actually with Caleb channeled into Trace Mack. Like that's there you go. We did it. Uh, Chad Scarborough as well. XL Dono, thank you so much. Welcome in, and then a Hundo Bomb. Burr, 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 burr. Beep, 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 beep. Chris Dobson, let's go. Coming Chris. in hot. Thank you, Chris. Welcome to all of you, to the Patreon family. We uh, we love having you. Thanks for dropping donos. And uh, obviously, as always, still sitting on the throne. Yeah. Cooper and Kylie Craig. Three wins in a row. First time in a while. There's been a lot of close dethronings, but no one has dethroned them. Oh. And so they're still there. Fighting they're, it off. They're fighting it off. If you two want to be, of course, the king or queen of the GNFP, it's like a blind bidding eBay process. You submit a dono, and if you're the best, we tell you. And if not, then Cooper and Kylie Craig stay on the throne. All right, Alan, hit us with the Dono Legends. Okay, James Ridge, Barry Jenkins, Guy Tumbleson, Jason Walker, The Big Comey, Lil Payton, Constantine Double Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truitt, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rummery, Craig Scarado, Alan Horn, Sidney Singleton, Kristen Movie, David Sugar, Percy Harvin, baby, and Doug DiVirgilio. It's great one did on there. Okay, let's talk about this game. You used the word disappointing. I would maybe say lackluster. You're in the stadium. How did you feel as the game was unfolding and we kicked one field goal after another? Did it feel like it was sucking all of the air out of the room or did it energy still good? What was it like inside the swamp? You know, it was it was energyless. I would say I was sitting in the end zone with my friend um, and fan family of his friends, so it was it was a chill environment, really. Anyway, but the people around me were making all sorts of comments. There was a lot of frustration, and I think it ranged from people that have probably only watched the Gators a little bit. That's what you tend to get in the stadium at a, at a game like Charlotte, and people that watch all the time. Uh, some people left early; they were so frustrated. So I think there's there's a range of, of frustration, of course, that was on display, not only in the swamp, but I think across devices and televisions throughout the world that were watching this game. Uh, it, it was unfolding in a way that only got worse as time went on rather than better. Florida did start off really well. I think people were feeling mm-hmm. it. We're vibing. We're good. We're rolling. We're going we're gonna to roll Charlotte right out of here. And then it just sort of became this slow malaise till where the end of the game you were like this really happened just like this and this doesn't feel good yeah I think the expectation was that Florida was going to roll we picked much bigger scores than what we ended up um, at and that Florida at some point would wake up and you get to the end of the third quarter and like this is this is what it is Uh, so yeah lackluster I mean one side of the ball dominant outside a few short stretches and the offense just never quite could click in, despite moving the ball a lot, disappointing finishes in the red zone, which is really where you want to see this team capitalizing against an opponent like Charlotte. Because, you know, as we said, not nearly as bad as McNeese State. We'll offer some resistance. But if you're Florida and you want to make stri- you know improvements and st- take strides on that side of the ball, it really didn't turn out that way. Uh, I want to mention the thing that probably is most memorable for this game right at the top here. I'm just going to call it the Ricky catch. This is all over social media. Was amazing. I mean, we're all prone to hyperbole and kind of this modern era, but legit one of the best catches I've ever seen, especially considering the 
hit he took at the end of it. I think that's what, you know, despite Florida kicking five field goals, I think that's what I'm going to remember from this game 10 years from now for sure. Yeah, me too. And I said on the film review, I think that's a life highlight for both Graham Mertz and for Ricky Pearsall. That will be shown forever. And obviously, the more distance you get from this season and this game, the more that catch will be all that stands out from it. That's how these individual football memories work. Of course, if it were occurring in a significant game, it would mean that much more. But number one play on SportsCenter, probably going to be in contention for a top 10 play of the year for SportsCenter. It's that good of a catch. And to your point, it's that much better because he takes a hit by two guys and the ball's like glued to his hand. Amazing. And the stills are amazing. I mean, the whole thing is amazing. I'm still not convinced he couldn't have necessarily reached out his left hand and just <laughs> caught it that way. But you know what? Why the heck not? OBJ started a movement with everybody wanting to one-hand balls, and uh, that was absolutely cold. I mean, really, really sick stuff. Yeah, disgusting stuff from Ricky there. I'm from amazing. Ricky. And he had a great game. Spoiler alert right here. You know, I called him out in the pod last week and basically said, hey, I think his routes are sloppy. I don't think he's putting good stuff on film. And happy to report that every route he ran in this game was clean and crisp. And I would like to think it it contributed in some small fashion to him getting a little bit more separation than we've seen in these games. There was a lot less dancing around to make a move. And again, I don't think he listens to the podcast or watches the film review. But the I'm coaches, sure the coaches do. were telling not the listen to the podcast. Right. I'm sure they the were film. on the same thing on film saying, hey, you really got it. You got to be a lot more crisp here. So the point of that is hats off to him for making that adjustment. He had a really nice game on film and obviously also had a highlight catch. Okay. So even just the last word you said before we hit record here where you know, a lot of discussion as people are wondering whether they should hit the panic button. So I'm going to kind of gauge our thoughts. here. I'm going to bring back a little game we played a couple weeks ago. Most optimistic view of the outcome, most pessimistic. And I'm going to ask you to tell me which one feels most accurate. All right. Most optimistic view here. You ready? I'm ready. I love this game. Okay. This is a Florida team that probably didn't, is not focused in on Charlotte, right? They're they're looking at Kentucky and some of the you know the further along some of the bigger name opponents. They're missing three offensive starters in the first half. They're saving a little juice for some of these later games. And look, the defense played amazing, right? That that's where we're going to hang our hat, and we're gonna, we're going to play complimentary football. I know you know if you're uh, counting those in your bingo card, if you're you're watching Billy Napier presser. And, you know, if you just convert three of those field goals into touchdowns, you know, you're in the 30s, everybody's happy, no consternation. You just clean up a little bit here and there, and Florida is winning this game very easily. You get in the backups, maybe even do some different stuff. The game starts to get away from Charlotte. They're not able to play Jalen Jones, and this is a romp like we expected. Okay, most pessimistic view here these offensive issues are now entrenched red zone issues third down issues are not going to be easily solved outside some dramatic changes inside the organization every game is going to be a rock fight if you're going to win it against any kind of opponent and as much as we like certain players on this offense as a unit, there's not a lot of cohesion. Still way too many mistakes on special teams. Some of the stuff that Billy's aiming for is just not going to come to fruition because the offensive line is not going to allow it to. And this is going to be where we're at until the offseason. 
Wow, I'd say there's man, that's it's in the middle, more towards pessimistic as you made some commentary that I think we know is is been consistently true now, you know, a year and a half into Billy's tenure on the pessimistic side. But on the optimistic side, and I'll marry them together, I think it's clear now that the second most important player and maybe the most important player on Florida's offense is this is a big statement, is is Kingsley, our center. The offense does not function right now with a freshman center, and that's no offense to Slaughter, who I think is probably going to be a really nice offensive lineman. You don't want to play freshman in general on the O-line in the SEC. At center, you definitely don't want to play a freshman. But if you just look at how Florida executes their zone blocking scheme, which is complicated, requires a lot of coordination, and mainly all of that is done by the center, it is a massive, massive step down from Kingsley to anyone else. And it's not like Kingsley's an all-SEC performer, by the way. But for Florida, he might be the key that makes the engine turn on. And I think in this game, it's probably a very different game if he's able to play. So that does mean there is there is reality to the fact that missing those offensive linemen, including Mazuka, obviously also missing George on the right side, but really Kingsley, did lead to, I think, some subpar results that probably don't occur If you're fully healthy, which leads you to get at least probably two more touchdowns, but largely and lastly, there were plenty of ways that Florida could have overcome those deficits in this game versus an overmatched opponent, and they did not yet again, and that leads into your meta commentary that what we're seeing, we are continuing to see, and to believe that we're not going to continue to see it, at least with some range of expected variance, would be to ignore the null hypothesis that is staring us right in the face which is that Florida's offense continues to disappoint when it comes to not only just third down conversions, but also just in general, we're going to call passing down success, second and seven and longer, third and five and longer, even third and short in this game. Uh, Those are unsustainable things if you want to have a solid season in the SEC. And so therefore you can marry them together. But again, it's not just enough that Florida was missing O-linemen. It's not in this game. That, That doesn't hurt us, but that is not explained 22 points and only one touchdown in this game. Yeah, I would tend towards the pessimistic view. Now, I, I would say I'm still more bullish on Florida finishing out the season with a respectable win total than probably the national prognosticators are. But if I'm worried about the offense, I'm worried about the offense. I it's not. I don't think we're going to see a sea change here. Like, okay, we just get all the pieces together and in conjunction. I think you can get more um, stability amongst that offensive line. I mean, they haven't really played together at all between suspensions and injuries. Um, So, And they're a new unit anyway. So there's some upside variance there. You could get, if you get a little bit better blocking, you start to unlock some stuff. So I do think there is some upside here, but... Not as much as you would hope for. This is going to be like a 30 points per game kind of unit. Yeah, and for me, that's mainly scheme. And the flip side is also true on the defensive side, which we should I should just say in two sentences here. Yeah. You mentioned on the optimistic view that the defense is trustable and is solid as a top unit. And we've been saying that every week, and that is completely true, proven yet again in this game, which we'll talk about in more detail. The defense, they're the alphas of this football team. They will carry Florida to wins. And let's be real here, Alan. This defense can probably win, looking at the rest of Florida's schedule, three to four games on their own. They can. They can do it. It can be done. They are that dominant. And so if you're looking at Florida getting to seven or eight wins, the story is going to be the defense. Unless by some magic miracle, the offense does things that are way against what the film and data would say. 
the defense can do it. It can be done. And there's going to be a rock fight every game, like you mentioned, but you can win those rock fights. There's going to be a lot, you know, smaller margin for error, more which you would consider to be luck. If you want to call it that in these games or the ball bounces right for you, or you make a field goal or don't, but the defense is good enough that they're going to keep Florida in probably all of these coin flip games uh, where starting the year, we thought if we could just get a top 50 defense and a 50th ranked offense, we can probably get to seven or eight. Well, that's still true to your point. And that's the optimistic view is, is this defense is so good right now uh, that they could, they could potentially carry Florida to a decent season overall. All right. Let's talk about the game itself here. Florida wins by a very weird 22 to seven. Our keys to the game, I, the offense passed the eye test for me was number one. That's a great key to the game. Do you think we passed that no, one? No, that we did not. <laughs> and low QB pressures, which is not true. Mertz got hit a lot. Yeah, seven pressures by them, three right. sacks. I mean, against Charlotte. Again, this is it. We should pause for a second and say this. This defense gave up 466 passing yards last week to Georgia State. 466. Before that, they gave up 273 rushing yards to Maryland. And so, Maryland's good. Maryland's good, but Maryland's not great. And Georgia State's a nice competitive team in the division they play in, 466. So Charlotte's had halves where they've played well. We talked about them. We said they could give Florida trouble. We said this could happen, but it's important to know your opponent. This was not a defense that came in rolling people. All right, carry on. Yeah, and the defense to just basically allowed 10 points or under, and they did so. I was really hoping for a shutout in the first half, and then we would see what happened in the second half. But I mean, pretty close to that. And your your key were, were pretty simple: over forty five and under ten. Hit the under ten. Didn't come close to the forty five. Even if we capitalize on like three of those, like converting three of those field goals, and you add you know twelve points to it to make it more respectable, it it still doesn't get close to your forty five. And the, it could have gotten there. And we'll talk about how, obviously, but it didn't. And that is why I wanted that simple mark. Is is we said it doesn't. I don't care what the storyline is afterwards, because largely you, you can find ways to make excuses as a fan for why all these things don't work right. And that is a trap. That is mm-hmm. a losing mentality trap, right? As a coach, my number one job is to hit my ceiling for my team. And if I start saying things like a win's a win, it's hard to win. I'm happy we won. And I believe that I'm embracing a losing mentality versus this Charlotte team. Success would have been exactly what you and I had laid out. We were not successful. That's period. End of story. I don't care how many guys we are missing that is not successful offense. The defense, by the way, yet again, consistent, excellent, very successful. Yeah. So you're just seeing the difference here. And something we have been highlighting from day one with this football team is that last year it was both offense and defense. This year we've solved the defense checkbox because of a talented person in Coach Ham and a talented group of people in the players. I want to make one note here that there's there's been a seemingly like, like a division where some people are in the camp, Allen, it's all about the talented players. And the other people, it's all about scheme and coaching. The answer is both. The only way you win anything in a very competitive environment in any sport is you have to have both talented coaching and talented players. You cannot have one without the other. We are seeing that on defense. And the scary thing is, Allen, we're only going to get more talented on defense. This is the beginning and we're this good. Hence, you can hear our effusive praise for Coach Ham. He is a superstar right now in the profession. On offense, the only thing Florida fans can do is find 500 different reasons to justify our poor performance now through one and a half years. I'm just not going to do it. The film says we shouldn't do it. You're not going to do it. The point totals versus Charlotte don't do it. 
But it doesn't mean that we can't win football games this season. I think that's an important thing that we're yeah. both saying. But this game, because of what you and I predicted, because of the point spread, because of how it looked, all of it, style, substance, all of it was not successful. To call it successful on offense would would be to be delusional. Right. And I was tempted to start with the defense here because I think we should. I was going to do, do you want to flip? I it? want to. I don't want to start with the offense. Right, we need to, we want to start with what is awesome. OK, <laughs> let's do it. All right. Let's flip it down to the defense. I'll scroll down here. Dominant unit on the field. Three of 13 on third down for Charlotte. And so a little note here. You have the best in the SEC in third down third percentage. Mm-hmm. That's right. They're over for one and fourth down. 211 yards passing, 133 rush. Or excuse me. 211 yards total, 133 passing, 78 yards rushing, 2.7 yards per rush. 3.1 for Jalen Jones when he was out there. Which is important because that's right. not actually good. No. And historically, we've seen running quarterbacks torch Florida. You might have felt like Jones was doing really well, but he had a few nice plays, and they moved the ball some, but 3.1 on 20 carries for a really explosive running quarterback is a good day at the office for Florida. And Florida didn't exactly bring out their best possible game plan to stop Jones either, right? They're largely running stuff they know is fine. They're ready. They're not planning for this like they would plan for an SEC opponent. So that's actually really good, especially considering Florida played a lot of you know, a lot more snaps for guys like Nunnery, Mitchell, etc. Uh, so I want to highlight that is actually nice, given the fact that Jones is a very explosive, high level runner. He's not just a guy; he's a very explosive guy. I mean, he was recruited to Florida, obviously. So correct. Uh, yeah, as long as we're talking about him, I, I think it stands out in contrast to when the defense is basically obliterating everybody else. That Charlotte's throwing out there when he's not in the game, you bring him in. It's like, did we not prepare for this guy? What's going on? You're starting to worry. And then you look up and, yeah, they score, but then largely shut down the rest of the game, right? So, uh, and that happens too when you see a running quarterback come in. It takes some adjustment to gauge his speed and power. And there's a couple of times where Florida did not have the right fits. There, there's some issues there. But uh, obviously didn't get continue to gash them. Someone made a point of last year as, you know, Jerry Bohannon for um, USF murdered Florida running the ball. And he's not even that good of a runner. No, Jalen Jones is a better runner. If you put Jalen Jones in that game, he would have had 500 yards rushing. Correct. Correct. And so the defense, you know, and again, I think sometimes we're expecting from a unit, offenses will gain yardage. It's almost impossible to stop them. They're not going to go zero yards, zero yards, zero yards, punt every single drive. But it just highlighted your expectations have already built for this defense that any kind of yardage or any kind of big plays are like, what is going on here? Right. Well, I want to put some more context to that, but let me finish here. Seven punts. That's great. Four sacks, six tackles for loss. It's a great day at the office right right there. So this is obviously an overall very successful outing from the defense, even opponent calibrated, right? Biggest highlights for you. What were you most impressed by in this particular game? Well, I think in general, Florida's defensive line, especially when the starters are out there, right? They just continue to play as as a unit, and that that is why they are so successful. At times when Florida did give up a big running play, it was often with not what you would consider to be Florida's main line unit, which would be Scooby, Shamar, your three starting defensive linemen, uh, plus Princely, plus you know, typically, and again, most of Florida's base outfits is going to be. Jaden Hill at nickel Florida played a lot a lot of snaps without a nickel 
And that, I think, is largely to probably give Jaden Hill some rest because they certainly could have given what Jones was doing. Jaden Hill's a good tackler. He's quick. They were playing a lot of Nunnery, a lot of Mitchell. That slows Florida down. Those guys are not nearly, I think, as adept. Uh, they're good. They're fine. But we just don't play a know, lot that, of three linebacker fronts. Don't anyway. play a lot of three linebacker fronts in general. And you certainly can justify doing it versus a running quarterback, yeah. by the way. And I think those reps were solid. But all in all, the whole point is to say the front seven, once again, uh, solid, you know, really solid. And there are points in this game that we're going to talk about where Florida definitely got exposed on several plays, some really well-designed screen plays by Biff, Pogi, and the boys. I mean, some nice stuff, which I think is great that that happened to Florida. You know that Coach Ham will use that. And also some some things they're going to want to see on film when it comes to a running quarterback. Now, for the most part, Florida was really well-prepared. The opening play of the game was a speed option. And Florida was all over that. Jaden Hill played it absolutely perfectly. So what you typically see on film is that there was largely on the busted plays, a player issue. Nunnery on the big on the big um, pass completion plays zone and everyone else is playing man. So they get a tight end wide open. And uh, some of the other plays, kind of similar concepts occurred. But largely speaking, again, to your point, Alan, it's awesome that we have to find like a few 20-yard passes or a few 20-yard runs to look at and say like, Oh, well, it wasn't, it wasn't perfect. Like Mm -hmm. that's how good the defense was. And they were doing this having to, once again, let's call it what it is. Win the football game, win this football game. If you put last year's defense into this game, we lose this game in all likelihood, right? I mean, famously Charlotte gets the ball after a quick turnover by Florida to start the second half. We're only up, I think 16 to seven at that point in time on our 35 yard line. And then all the defense does is promptly cause them to lose yardage which then causes them to miss a field goal. That's amazing. And and that's the one thing about this. So we're going to nitpick the things as we do that on this podcast. We're going for perfection. So is Coach Ham. So there are some things Florida could have done better. But largely speaking, again, uh, the front seven is rock solid. Obviously, the back and the safety. It's the best safety play we've had. I mean, Jordan Castle's a revelation back there. Uh-huh. Knows where he's going, directing everyone. Shamar James is like a fourth-year senior playing linebacker. I mean, you can see him directing everyone on the defense to get in the right place. I mean, the guy's like a football savant already with his knowledge of what's happening. And Scooby Williams has got to be the most improved guy maybe in the whole country from last year to this year as a linebacker. It's unbelievable what we're seeing on film each and every week. And it showed up again on, on this film. And that's, yeah, I wanted to talk about Scooby again. And maybe it's just biased because, you know, so frustrated by the linebacker play last year when these guys clearly have the athleticism to be high-end performers. You know, Shamar is new. Scooby's older. He's not that young of a player. And he's being used, as you think said last week, to perfection and highlighting all of his strengths and letting him – and he's being coached well technique-wise. And so watching him come and blow up play after play after play is amazing. Just erasing plays. Like, oh, there's a guy in space a little bit. What's going to happen? Nope, Scooby's there just eviscerating him. And – I think one of the biggest highlights for me is how many guys Florida put out there without a appreciable level um, of like decline, right? That there's some guys out there who are not the starters. Uh, of course, they're going to rotate on the D line. These freshmen look competent and capable and huge, right? You look at Kelby Collins. That dude is a man. Guy had already. a great, great game. I yeah, mean, played really pop, well. Popped the most on film of all the new guys. I mean, he right. was all over the place. Right. And you're seeing, uh, you know, TJ Cersei out there looking good as well. So I, I don't know that you would think with the defense, like they, they would have had a chance to play more 
backups if it's a blowout. But then I thought about that they're already playing the backups for the most part. There's a ton of guys out there who are getting snaps. Yeah, they were playing them even when the game was still close. Like right. Florida's up 19-7. They're playing an entire new back end of the safety spots. They're playing all the different corners. I mean, they were not shy. Mm-hmm. And that's again, that's what you can be confident when you trust your players and your scheme. You're not worried about having to have your first line unit out. So there. some guys you saw price out there for the first time, Bryce Thornton in the back end, a lot of Sharif Denson at nickel, who's played some, but now that um, Perkins is gone. You're going to see him more. He's the backup there. And I don't know what happened if Hill really went down. We'd probably have to move somebody over there permanently. But yeah, I think um, they'd probably move a corner. I think yeah. you're absolutely somebody from corner would go there. But yeah, it's good to see him get some reps and great. did fine out there for the most part. Okay, let's talk about Jalen Jones running the ball. So I think there's a little bit of probably panic because the player that gave Florida the most trouble in game one was Nate Johnson running the ball for Utah. Jalen Jones comes out there and is having some success running the ball. Is this a chink in the armor for the Florida defense? Are they going to struggle against this? Give me your level of concern, 1 to 10. Let's say, I don't even know if we have a guy like this on the schedule again, maybe until you get to Jordan Travis, who's not, he's a scrambler, not really a QB run guy that they're going to run him 15 times a game. But give me your level of concern, 1 to 10, if we were to face another running quarterback. Yeah, 1. Uh, I have no concern, and I think we've already seen this in both of these games. So with the Utah game, obviously Florida, as the game went on, really started to to stop Nate Johnson in general. And this is game one of, of the Coach Ham era. In this particular game, look, with running quarterbacks, running schemes in general, you are you are typically going to probably give up one touchdown. And it's largely because your players don't face it very often. It's, a, it's an offense that can work on a drive or two because if you miss a fit, it's a huge play because you have all 11 guys doing something. Whereas the quarterback hands the ball off, he becomes a dead player. It's why Urban Meyer liked to run quarterbacks, right? So there's there's you know there's high risk, high reward for the offense. The low risk part is he can't throw, so you can't move the ball predictably throwing the football. But outside of the touchdown drive that Jalen Jones had, they really didn't threaten. And they had the ball a million more times. Right. So I think that tells you the answer to the question right there. And you mentioned it. This is going to be the best probably running quarterback Florida faces. Charlotte is a Division One football team. They're not. They're in the AAC now. Yeah, they play real opponents. Uh, but no, I mean, none. I mean, I think in Florida was doing it competently with backup safeties, backup nickels, backup linebackers, different formations, different fronts. Didn't matter. They still stopped them. So imagine if Florida's playing their best rotation the entire game. So I think it's awesome that Florida's faced this season two running quarterbacks. If we have to face one again, I think we will be extremely well prepared. And my concern level is one. I, I don't see an issue. Scheme-wise, we play it very well. The players know what they're doing. Uh, and I feel very comfortable that you know this unit would, would not have an issue with that. And that's obviously, again, highlighted on film. I think we saw Jalen Jones escape the pocket more in large part because we had different guys that were coming in on sim pressures. We had different defensive linemen who aren't the ones we saw versus Tennessee that were locking that pocket down. And they're going to learn from that stuff. You know, Wingo had a great game, but two or three times he would kind of come in. uh, And I think he was, you know, made some big plays early on may have left his gap a little bit exposing a side to it. But even, even then Alan, for the most part on film, like the integrity of Florida's fits, not only run fit, but also pass pass lane fit is just so good from the freshman to the, to anybody. Like they understand that they can't just go rogue and leave their spot. And that's why I don't have a concern. It's not repeatable for this stuff to happen. Uh, so maybe a team gets one drive 
one good sequence where they hit you with a few plays you haven't seen before. They gadget something up nicely. And that's probably going to be it. I think Florida's going to clamp that stuff down just like they did in this game, uh, obviously, on Saturday. Yeah, just to contextualize even a little bit more, I mean, Florida with Utah won their, their – this is a th- all the defense is in theory, right? They've been practicing against themselves. But they had to prepare for three quarterbacks. I don't know how much time they actually spent on Nate Johnson. They're like, oh, he's going to play. Is he going to play like five snaps? And Jalen Jones, you have a split quarterback system here for Charlotte. And I'm sure you're not spending as much prep on them as you would – Right. That's Kentucky. the big thing. So, You're not giving them a full prep week. Correct. Right. So when he came in, I'm sure there was some adjustment. And again. And they were ready. The opening yeah. play of the game was a speed option. Look, they if were you're ready not for ready sure. for that, that's going to get you. Florida yes. had the perfect call on. They executed it absolutely perfectly for a, a no gain. I mean, that, they were ready. And there is something about, like you said, a running quarterback. There is an advantage there. So it's it's easier to have some success doing that. Yeah. And it has its 25 of the yards, by the way, 25 of his rushing yards came when it was 20 seconds left in the first half. They're on their own 25 yard line and they run a quarterback run. True. And Jordan Castle comes down. He's got him about five yards off the line of scrimmage and doesn't even touch him. Just whiffs really bad. And he picks up 25 yards. But Florida's not Florida's in it. You can have yards there. Uh, not that many. You want the safety to make a tackle. But again, like, you know, when a third of his rushing yards came with 20 seconds left and they're running the ball on their own 25 you have to be careful with some of the stats there too. And so if you take well, that so, away, what does he really have then? So right. I'm, I'm no concern. All right, good. Enough of that. I'm with you there. All right. I have just a little new standouts, old standouts. Um, I don't know where he fits on this, but I'm going to talk about, if we have a ruling on its Castell, Castell. I don't know. I keep saying it both ways and no one said anything to me. So sorry. Like, sorry, Jordan. Someone say something. Jordan hit me up. Number 14. Uh, when they announced that he was starting, I immediately went, uh-oh. We're going to have to play a freshman back there. That means one of two things. He's really good or the other guys are just trash. And maybe both of those things can be true. But he's been, as you said, rock solid out there. And as if he continues on this trajectory, he's going to be a star. I've now basically forgotten that he's a freshman I have a belief in him that he's going to make the right play and be in the right place and have a level of physicality that he's going to need to have. So amazing. I mentioned Scooby. Uh, Caleb Banks looked great at times. I mean, just Monster. really difficult to deal with how that guy big he is, is killing people out there this year. And we've already mentioned Kelby Collins a little bit. We haven't talked a lot about him. Fantastic in this game. Yeah. All and he's a guy time. that, again, X Factor, right? We talked about pass rush being a potential problem. If by the end of the year, he's a guy that teams are going to have to game plan for and deal with like formationally, that's going to be really difficult for them with Princely on the other side who looked great at times as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some old, some old standouts, you know, obviously Shamar James has just become a top sec level linebacker. I, I, I can't even imagine if we had Hopper, Shamar and Scooby, what kind of unit this would be this year. Amazing. Uh, but either way, amazing as it is. Uh, Prince Lee continues to just be really solid. I mean, the coaching you can see has really impacted him. And they are using that guy like a Swiss army knife. He's covering the flat. When he gets to the rush to pass or one-on-one, he's almost always getting home. Uh, they're using his skill set really wisely, I think, in general. And then Wingo had a great game. Two pass deflections, was all over the place. Not a guy who gets to be a starter. But again, this is a sign of good coaching. He's almost been like an absent guy. 
you see him play. He played some last year. He doesn't really do anything. He basically plays only at the end of games right. and on special teams. But he's in there today. He's in there early on in the game. And he, he he's popping. He's doing stuff. They're leveraging him correctly. Right? He seems to, well, I don't know, maybe for this game. I wonder if he's passed Mitchell on the depth chart. Perhaps. And the thing is, he's a good, you know, Florida likes to run a lot of simulated pressures, especially double A gap simulated pressures, where they basically, I'll call it an inversion. They take their two ends and they drop them back into coverage and they take their two linebackers and they bring them in the A gap, which is a really nice simulated pressure. You're only bringing four guys, but Wingo's powerful. And multiple times they are ready for him in pass protect and he's blowing somebody up to get to the quarterback. And that's a useful skill. And again, credit a good scheme and a good staff to recognize, hey, we're not going to ask Wingo to go out and cover somebody. That's not going to work well. But if we're in this package, he can do this really well. And we're going to leverage that skill. So I thought good for him to get some nice plays on tape there as well. So, you know, uh, Sap didn't pop in this game. We'll list him on the wrong side of things. He jumped on that fourth and one which you know he's going to want back. Just last week, Florida gets Tennessee to jump, and then Florida jumps on that fourth and one play, which, again, I think if you're Coach Ham, you love that because you want that on film. So the rest of the guys know we will see this again this year, and nobody better jump off sides, right? We're not going to have that happen. Um, so Sap, though, has been a you know been a really solid player for Florida this year as well. And i put this in final thoughts, but I'll go ahead and talk about because you mentioned it. This is more of a note on Billy dealing with players in this situation. You know, he's over. You didn't see it because you didn't see the broadcast. You know, Billy's talking to him on the sideline. And the announcer's like, oh, Sap, getting an earful from from Coach Napier. And it's like, no, he's not. He's just very calmly talking to him. Probably through like, hey, what happened there? And, you know, hey, we got to want to – I don't know what he said. But he wasn't didn't seem upset at all. But that's just, you know, I guess a cliche of a coach – reaming a guy who jumped off sides in a in that situation and i gotta say i love billy handling it that way and not sap's been awesome this year if you're i don't usually watch these but if you've watched the some of the uf documentary stuff that they're putting out like our journey or whatever seems like a really good dude level-headed and really intense about like competing for the gators and you you will come away liking him and so yeah i love that that moment for him and Napier again. I don't know what Napier said. He could have been saying terrible things to him. Probably not. But it was funny. The announcer's just instinct to say he's getting an earful when he seemed to be just talking to him. Yeah, and that's exactly right. For that kind of guy who's conscientious and, and, and plays solidly all the time, you don't you don't need to say anything. He already knows what he did wrong. And I think you're confirming what made you jump off sides? You know, did mm-hmm. you know? The, did you know the situation? Yeah, I knew, Coach. It was fourth and one, and yeah, they got me. I was trying not to jump off sides. I thought I had to read something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, next time, let's err on the side of caution. We'd rather have them pick up that fourth down than give it to them. You know, that kind of conversation, which is the conversation you want to have with someone who you trust doing their job at the position. All right. So since you, know, you mentioned we're aiming for perfection and and kind of evaluating, that's obviously not totally true. But now the defense glowing reviews here. Excellent performance in them. They obviously still need improvement. Let's talk about some areas that they could improve in. Um, yeah, I we talked about the QBs. You mentioned the screen game. There was some stuff. The stuff they hit or almost hit. Is that some? Is that a thing that Florida's gonna have to deal with in the future, or is that just a quirky thing that Charlotte was doing? No, I think for sure other coaches will see how successful Charlotte was with that screen game and they will utilize it. So I think the number one focus for 
what you want to consider in-season improvement or adding something to your tactical package to your defense is working on the screen game. I'd be surprised if that was not a part of this week's package, given how Tennessee plays, I mean Tennessee, given how Kentucky plays in general. Uh, But make no mistake about it, coaches will have seen that and thought, oh, we can probably scheme some stuff up to take advantage of how Florida, that's what Charlotte did, how Florida likes to rotate uh, towards the running back side. They like to bring edge pressures, like to sometimes bring two into the middle. Uh, And they they took advantage of that with some really well-designed screens. They could have hit probably a touchdown on one of them, several more yards on another one. Uh, And, you know, several individual, what I call hero plays from a three-man D-line stopped two others. So I think if you're Coach Ham again, you love that you have that stuff on film. It's great to work with your linebackers and your linemen. Hey, let's not get fooled here. How did they fool us? How do we dissect this and diagnose this quicker next time? Uh, But that is something I think Florida can expect to see because on film, Florida's not giving you a lot of weaknesses. How do you attack this defense? Right now, it's not obvious. No one has successfully done it. The screen game has offered the most opportunity. So I think coaches will see that. Hey, third and 15, maybe second and five. Maybe a certain down where I feel like I can I can hit a home run with this play. I'm going to put it in. So I expect Florida right. to focus. Heavily and there on. are obviously limitations to whatever defensive formation you're in, and you're getting punched the wrong way there. So uh, yeah, keep an eye on that. And this is something I have. This is a little bit under the radar here because of his profile, but giving up some big plays, and uh, I think a lot of people are starting to pick up on it. If you're you know kind of closely watching, Jason Marshall has had his name called a little too often. Are you, are you, is it, do you think this is something like systemic for him that, uh, yeah, the problems with his either technique or what he's doing or just, Hey, he's just not had some great games. You know, we highlighted this last year. We started saying that Jason Marshall obviously had, was having major problems when Florida was playing coverages, cover three, cover, whatever, giving up way too many yards. Uh, and it kept showing up. And of course the scheme last year was bad, but his was particularly worse, and now this year in general, and we said this already this season, you know, to me on the film review, Devin Moore, I think right now is a better corner than Jason Marshall. And Jason Marshall's a five-star. He's got lots of talent. But if you're just looking on film and you don't know the background of any of these guys, I'd be hard-pressed to say that Devin Moore is not better than him right now. What does this mean for the future? I think obviously the coaching staff, you that's your five-star guy. You trust him. He's got a bright future on paper, but... On film, I think you got to sit Jason down and say, look, on film, there's some stuff on here that it would be concerning to NFL scouts. That's where you want to go. You got to clean this stuff up. You're leaving too much separation when you're in your backpedal in a cover three technique. And man, you've been getting beat too often. You're in trail quite a few times. Again, we got to clean up your technique. We got to figure out what's happening with your transition on the vertical routes. But he needs to clean his game up some. So this is going to be like a Ricky warning in a different sense i think you know ricky hasn't was not at the level jason marshall was he was still performing well but marshall here i think very realistically if this were the nfl probably has already lost his job to devin moore but i think because in college you're going to lean more to your five stars to grow into what you think might be their ceiling perhaps he gets more time but i think for him he's got to be on notice that he's he's walking a narrow line where he might not be the starting corner or at least might not be getting the snaps he's used to getting if he doesn't improve what is on film. Hmm. Interesting storyline to follow there. Now, before we switch out of defense, let's yeah. go, let's look at, let's, let's try to encapsulate how good the defense is with some stats. Okay, do it. So I've been waiting to debut this on the pod. We haven't used this before, although I use it all the time in large part because I was waiting for the right moment where there's a significant dichotomy and that occurred with Kentucky. 
So I'm going to debut it for the defense first, but the offense, you'll see later what I'm talking about. So there's, there's something called success rate. It's an advanced stat, probably been around for 15 years. So it's not new, but it doesn't get a lot of traction per se. Against the, in the analytics community, it's quite common. It's very common. In the gambling community, it's super common. And largely, largely because success rate, I would argue mathematically, is the most predictive of all stats. Now, for the 2023 season, it's still too early. You need a little more data, especially when teams are not playing competitive opponents. But it is generally known as probably the most accurate. Like, what does this really mean about what's happening? And the success rate is very easy to define. What does that mean, success rate? I'll start looking at it offensively. The reverse is true defensively. So to measure whether an individual play is successful, there's four criteria. One, the play goes for a touchdown. That's obviously successful. Two, on first down, you get 50% of the yardage or more. So you get five yards or more if it's first and 10. If it's first and 15, you know, you've got to get more, right? Uh, if it's second down, you have to get, or third down, I'm sorry, if it's second down, then you've got to get 70% of the yards to get there. So second and five, you want to get almost all the way to the first down. And if it's third down, you want to get 100% of the way there or fourth down. So basically convert your third down, that's successful. Convert your fourth down, successful. Second down, almost get there, successful. First down, get halfway there. Kind of your rubric, right? On defense, the reverse is true as well. If it's first down and you hold a team to five yards or less on first and 10, successful play for you, right? Very simple rubric, very powerful rubric. But what it does is it illustrates how well your defense is doing in a variety of factors. And what I love about it is it separates things into standard downs and passing downs, which is very important. So your standard downs is any down that is not a passing down. Okay, well, what's a passing down, <laughs> right? A passing down is any down that is second and seven or longer or third or fourth and five or longer. Kind of obvious, right? Third and fourth and five, that's going to be passing down. Second and seven, passing down. Anything else, standard down. So Florida's defense overall success rate-wise, and how successful each individual play is, they're number three in the country right now. They are number two on standard downs. They are number seven on passing downs. They are number one on run plays only. They are number seven on passing plays. So no matter how you slice it, standard down, passing down, run play, pass play, they're top 10. Number one versus the run, number three overall. That is outrageous when I tell you that last year's defense in all of those categories was in the 100s. Yes. 100s. And Florida has played two ranked opponents. Unbelievable that that's the case. Now, Utah's offense, obviously not great this year. It doesn't matter. It's better than playing some other small, tiny school. Outrageous. So success rate generally means this, Alan. Typically, the success rate will correlate to the end of the season. If you are this good right now, you're probably going to finish as a good defense. And I'm going to illustrate why this is important when we talk about offense. Because my other favorite stat, yards per play, points per play, can get a little finicky, especially early in the year, where it may not be what it seems to be. And you're going to see that with all of Kentucky's stats. So that's why I'm setting us up here with Florida's own stats to really show you what I think Kentucky looks like as a team because Kentucky has some unbelievably eye-popping stats until you look at success rate. So there's your introduction into success rate. I expect us to use this more often throughout the season. I won't give that disclaimer. It's pretty simple. But Florida's defense having a ton of success on each and every individual play, largely why they're winning. And I think that passes the eye test as well, right? Or it matches the eye test is what I want to say. 100%. Yeah, it's intuitive. Right. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. 
Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The offense never seems comfortable. And if the offense is never comfortable, you're doing your job. That's okay. good. All right, let's talk about the offense there. Uh, mentioned this a little bit, but one for nine on third down. Another little note here. This is not fun. One of 15 dating back to the start of the second half versus Tennessee. Now, that's a little skewed because of what they were trying to do in the second half versus Tennessee. But, I mean, but, is it one of 15? Eh, you know. All right. It's three. not like they weren't trying to get a third down. Yeah, sometimes. Okay. All right. Yeah, one of 15. That, I, that stands. Include the Utah game. You're at some horrifically gross number. Let's not talk it's, about it. I don't want to. It's okay. sick. 395. <laughs> Yards of offense, that's 136 rushing, 259 passing, 11.3 yards passing. Interesting. That's very healthy. Yeah. 3.8 yards per rush. That is not healthy. Two fumbles, 0 for 1 on fourth down, three sacks, seven tackles for loss. Mertz has a very tidy little line here, 20 of 23 for one TD, 87% completion rate. Uh, Montreal Johnson, 16 carries, 63 yards. ETN, eight carries, 48 yards. Ricky, six receptions, 104 yards. And then we saw really kind of the debut of Arliss Boardingham in the passing game. Two catches only, but he had that lone TD and had another nice long reception there. So you can see why they like him as a receiver. Also had some nice dancing skills there, so good for him. Okay. One for nine on third down. I have one word here. Blurg. Also wrote, who are we? Iowa? That is bad for... Any game. <laughs> oh, man. But against a, an opponent like Charlotte, that's tough to do. One for nine. It, it seems almost impossible to do in our reality. In fact, Biff, the the legendary Biff Pogi, you saw him on the sideline, cut off sleeve shirt, shorts. Love him. Said afterwards that you may not see Florida have those third down stats again for the entirety of Billy Napier's career at Florida. And of course, if you watch more Florida games, you think out oh, maybe you maybe you will. But either way, point is that's how successful the defense was. It's that much more absurd when we gave you the stats on how you know Charlotte's defense was a total sieve before this. So yes, that was who are we? Iowa was an excellent quote there. All right, uh, I think these are similar, so I'm going to blend them. We can talk about third down conversion, but really the issues came in the red zone because we were picking up chunk plays often to get into the red zone area and give you a list of, of things of reasons for our red zone issues. Right. So to put the ball in the end zone, I want you to rank them in order of like most culpable for our frustration, our execution, right? The players just didn't execute what was going on. They missed a block, 
didn't run the right route, fumbled the ball, whatever it might be. Play calling. And by this, I mean predictability. It wasn't a good play call in that situation. Design. The design of the play is poor. In this situation, will not work. O-line limitations. The offensive line is missing people. They're not that functional to begin with. And the play was good. The design was great. We were going to have a nice thing, but somebody missed their block and it got blown up. Okay, in this game, particularly only in this game, uh, although there's issues that occur with this, it's going to be one play calling, two design, three O-line limitations, four execution. Meta, you flip you flip design and predictability, where design's one, predictability's two. But in this game, the predictability was the worst offender. Yes, interesting. They seem to... That's what felt like to me as well. That's how I would have ranked them. Um, it felt like we were running things that were suboptimal also that they were aware of what we were going to run and we were not playing off tendency which is fine there's going to be some of that that if you're if you're not prepping for a phone in charlotte maybe like i don't care we're just going to run this play because it works and you get stopped more than you think you might but obviously as the game went on you would need to start to counter what they were doing or be a little more unpredictable and that was not happening um Interesting. I would thought maybe the O-line limitations would have been a little bit higher for you. You know, really not. That's not really the reason why these particular plays failed, though. And, you know, rule number one of football, which you've heard us say if you've listened to this podcast for any amount of time, when you're calling plays on offense or you're calling plays on defense, is you follow the law of the numbers. If there are nine guys in the box, Alan, you know what you don't do? Generally speaking, run the football. You know what Florida does? Generally speaking, they run the football. That's stupid. That's outdated Mike Ditka-like bang your head into the wall because I don't care if I tell you what I'm doing. I'm tougher than you and I'm going to stop you. That's outdated thinking. That's not positive EV football and it's stupid. And we do it all the time, especially in the red zone. And you're your own worst enemy there, right? Basically, the opposing team on third and one is begging you to pass the ball. They're please pass the football. We have your two receivers versus our two defensive backs and the entire field. But if you run it, we've got nine guys here. And Florida's like, yeah, we're cool. We're going to run it. Now, it's one thing if you're picking it up. That's an important caveat, right? If you line up nine guys and you're running on them all day, four and a half yards of carry, keep running on them. That's fine. But if you're not, which Florida wasn't, you cannot go against the numbers. So that yeah, is That why. was kind of the galling thing, I think, is that these were m- many of them manageable third downs. The Utah, the Utah game, it was interesting. Uh, it was like third and seven, third and nine, third and 12. We got behind the sticks so much. And this game, it, it, I think that's part of why it was so frustrating. Is like these were things if you're building, if you're a slow-paced offense where you're we're, we're almost aiming to get to third and one half the time and we're not picking it up. And, yeah, if it's third and one and it's suboptimal, it's a safe play. If you're going to like, we're going to get three yards here, just – do it. It's probably actually functionally more successful than throwing a pass to maybe uh, we're not sure what our receiver is going to do on this play. Yes, do it. But if you're not picking it up, you got to change tactics. And we never did. Well, I think in general, it's a, it's a mismatch of, again, this is a brand mismatch, which we've gone to at Florida. We do not want to be a team on third and one when there's nine guys in the box. that is not trying to punish you with a touchdown. And in fact, good football, statistical football will tell you 
your best opportunities for huge plays, second and one and third and one. You have the most optionality. The defense is in the worst possible position, especially because, again, following analytics, on fourth and one inside the 10-yard line, you should always go for it. So if you're a team with the right mindset, you are telling your team, look, on third and one, we're going to be so loose. This is what we play for. We play for this moment to hurt a team. When they have to come down here and put nine guys in the box and give us the entire field to get open, and we're going to maximally punish them. And then when you do that, you put future opponents in more of a bind. But to your point, to revisit something you said, Alan, Charlotte knew exactly what Florida was going to do on almost every play. It was comical, comical. They were dropping their defensive ends, which you may have seen this live or on television, into the slant windows when it was third and five or fourth and five because they knew Florida was going to throw a slant because everyone in the world knows the ability to run slants on third and five and fourth and five or hitches. And they're all over that crap. And it's Charlotte. It's like, what the heck are we doing? So to your point, if they know your playbook, they're an inferior opponent, they're stopping you on third and one, not a lot of good options, obviously. And that's frustrating. That is frustrating. You can't play against the numbers, especially if it's not working. We have a year and a half of data to say Florida has not been a good team playing against the numbers. Why are we still doing it? Yes, and you've got a note here. This is less encouraging. And this is from Nick De La Torre or De La Torre. Nick, tell me what it is because I've known you and I don't know how to pronounce your name correctly at the end. And I hate that because my last name yeah, is Yeah, it works for on three. So just hit me up with whether it's Torre or, you know, Torre. All right. Red zone scoring issues under Billy got worse each year at Louisiana, getting worse at Florida. So red zone. Percentage. Every year he puts the data out there. Every right. single year. Literally start one of, of Napier. It got worse and worse and worse and worse until he leaves. And now at Florida, it's worse this year than it was last year. So it's a complete perfect regression line down 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 now you tell me whose fault that is because he had some decent offenses at louisiana the red zone always getting worse. and red zone is tricky because you the field condenses you have to be more creative about what you're going to do to get yardage and that has not been florida strength so far okay i and i would would you so i'm clumping these red zone issues with third down issues as one and the same would you yeah largely the same if we florida has look florida has another issue that billy openly talks about and it really honestly drives me insane you'll hear him talk a lot every game practically every game we have a bad third down game what does he say well a lot of those were were two down they were two down calls okay billy let's unwrap the two down call mindset that you have if it's third and five often for billy that's a two down that's a two downer He's going to run the ball for three yards to get to fourth and two. That is absolutely outrageous. Third and five is not third and 15. Third and 15 is a two downer. Third and 10, I'll accept a two downer. Third and five? That is sub EV football. So for a guy who obviously follows analytics, I think, Alan, it's something we've talked about. For Napier's own mindset, it's just not the right one for modern football. The data would say so. And I think he would argue right here that obviously I'm completely wrong and that it's the total right mindset and he won a championship and what have I done but sit here and podcast? And I would say, you're right, I've, I've sat here and podcast. But the numbers say something different. Football says something different. And ultimately, the data will prove performance to be right or wrong. But it's it's beyond frustrating that this is a continual thing, not only at Louisiana, but also at Florida. And Florida's a harder place to win in Louisiana, Alan. So again... You have to keep looking in the mirror and saying, does Billy recognize that some of his approaches to the game of football on offense are suboptimal? 
Or does he continue to think that when he gets his players in here, this will work? And well, that's we'll the crux of the argument. We said this last year with AR. He's very systematic. It's very possible he just thinks, just wait until I get Lagway and all my guys in here, and these same plays are going to work really well. To which I would say, you are still playing suboptimal football. Going for the bottom of the bar of production is not how you win. That's how you decrease your margin of error, not increase it. We need to optimize the offense. And anything that you saw on Saturday was not optimizing the offense. So, yes, there's still room for upside. Let's talk about someone who played fairly well on Saturday, despite those numbers, was Graham Mertz, right? Uh, Hit frequently, showed a level of toughness. It's weird to have that stat line with the offensive production, right? So very high completion percentage. We're not asking him to um, bomb it downfield in every play. Um, but he did throw down the field some. Still impressed with Mertz's play thus far this season? Yeah, he's managing the game really well. He played well. Now, in this game, I thought he had more throws available to him than anyone thus far. So obviously, we just took a hard look at, at some of the issues Billy's had, which we've been chronicling. And in this game, there was a bright side for sure. Several passing plays were better designed. Florida did hit on them. In fact, Florida had three more plays that were well-designed that should have been hit on that Mertz did not hit. Two of them definitely should have been hit. And one of them, uh, protection broke down probably a little too quickly for it to have gotten off. But I think in general, there's been a couple of plays and be one each game. Mertz could have let it go, but this was the one where you saw two for sure. And I think in general, of course, high completion percentage, he's not putting Florida in trouble. He's managing the games very well. He's throwing a nice football. But in this game, you saw some some of the things about Mertz that, that lead him not to be a top-level quarterback. So one ball placement. We talked about Kyle Trask. His ball placement was absolutely outrageous, right? The guy's so accurate. Opening the game, you see Khalil Jackson have to dive backwards for kind of a circus catch on a really well-designed play, the one that we've drawn up on the film review now for two years. Send a clear out, send a wheel behind him with your motion receiver, easy money versus a linebacker. Florida gets that route. Ball's thrown egregiously behind him, and Jackson makes a phenomenal catch. But that may be a touchdown. If you put that on his numbers, he gets to make a move on a safety. Uh, There were multiple others like that, a throw to Ricky as well. But then even the Ricky catch, the Ricky catch... And look, we're, we get to quarterback after the play, right? But pre-snap on the Ricky catch, it's a symmetrical look. He's got two on the left, two on the right, single eye safety. Pre-snap, you can pick whichever side you want. Literally, whatever side you want, you can pick it. However, here's what I'm going to tell you. Douglas is in the right slot. Ricky's in the left slot. What Which receiver has largely been getting more attention from Florida? Ricky. But most importantly, the safety, if you're following me still, is on the left hash. Ball's in the middle of the field. Safety is on the left hash. He's already declaring, I'm more over Ricky than I am on Douglas. You know that both Ricky and Douglas have vertical seam routes. Which means, means they're running right up the right up the seam. You got a skinny post from Douglas, which means you know that Douglas is running a skinny post without safety help on a team that gave up a million yards last week. On the snap, Mertz takes a snap, has time, looks only at Ricky, fits in an absolute little dime in between a safety who's coming and two other defenders. But he has a walk-in layup touchdown to Douglas on the skinny post. So optimal quarterbacking. We talked about the Trask. It does, don't say to me, well, hey, you know, you got to see that. You know what it is. We're just always talking about what we would talk about the quarterback in film study. What did you see pre-snap? Why did you make that decision? What's the better decision? Great completion. Great pass. Highlight. Love it. Always make the better decision. There were a couple of other ones that were like that where – 
He glued onto his first target, could have moved to safety with his eyes, could have created a bigger window with something else. So just little things, little things I think I'd like to see from him to take the next step to create better windows opportunity for Florida weren't on display here, but impressed with him as far as how he runs the offense and how he handles everything, how quickly gets stuff to the line. Yes, excellent. And now we're going to nitpick things because that's our job on film review. So let's make you better. Let's get you to the next level of a quarterback. Let's go beyond this and let's create bigger windows, which is going to lead to better downfield throws and ultimately better results for your team. So I'd like to see some of that stuff show up on film in the future. Uh, This is the first game where we've really got to even look at opportunities for downfield passing that even had something like that. I have not been able to see that because largely we don't have those choices. So uh, yes, impressed with Mertz, but plenty of room on this film for him to look at himself and say, you know, I could have made some better decisions. There were bigger plays out there for me. I need to hit them when they present themselves next game. Yes. I feel like, again, expecting the highest standard possible from quarterback in like the Monday film review is you're not going to have that. Right? You're never going to hit your film review review. That's not yeah. the point of it. Yeah. It's uh, never going to happen. You always expect to miss stuff. So I am impressed with him navigating what we're doing, hitting the hitting the guy, making the right decision for the most part, not putting Florida in trouble. I do think um, there is the possibility of him getting sped up a little bit with how porous the pass protection has been at times. So it's very understandable that he is not getting to a second read as quickly or whatever else because he's getting hit. Or he has to feel like he has to get the ball out quickly. And a lot of our later developing plays have not been there. And so, okay, I'm just going to take this, even if this is suboptimal. Some better protection. If you're looking for upside, some better protection. Him seeing him getting even more comfortable in the offense, more reps against more looks, could open up some bigger plays. Florida needs those big plays. It needs those plays like to Khalil Jackson to go for 40 yards and not seven yards. And Mertz is doing great. That's the nutshell there, right? You got a mixture of some fun stuff we got to do with Trask, which is what's the optimal film review look. But all all in all, Mertz is doing great. The scheme is the issue we keep highlighting, Mm -hmm. not the person. And he's a capable pilot and then some. He's he's done, I think, anything and everything any Florida fan could want Mertz to do. He has done it. He He has made Florida competitive on offense with the hand that he is being dealt as a quarterback. That's the main takeaway there. So yeah. Also a fun stat here to encapsulate that he has the third fewest time to throw. So he has the least amount of time almost uh, in all the sec. There's only two teams that are worse. So we're already at the bottom level of time to throw. And to your point, that's going to affect as a quarterback, how you decide to read the field out. That's going to affect you no matter who you are. And that's clearly going to affect Florida moving forward. Yes. So I think, I do have some hope for even more upside from Mertz, but he's played really well so far. Okay. Kind of three new offensive linemen-ish. We've seen Jake Slaughter before. Um, starting at right tackle, you had Lindell Hudson, who hadn't played very much, knew it, newer to the team, got a lot of snaps. And then at right guard, the freshman, Najee Harris. You know, I felt like for the most part, for backup linemen, came in and did the job well enough. We're not plus out there. You're playing one freshman and one guy who's not really played on the team yet. And Slaughter, we've talked about him being okay, but not at the level of Kingsley in terms of getting this line to work as a unit. Anything to note from that other than they played well enough for Florida to win, probably? I thought Harris looks pretty good for a freshman. I mean, there's reason to look at him and think this guy could this guy could probably be a nice part of Florida's line in the future. I think for the rest of them with Slaughter, you still have questions. He's a freshman. 
And then obviously with, you know, with the FIU transfer, I think that's where he came from, right? FIU. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's he's going to be a, a backup guy always. But Harris, I think, flashed some some real potential uh, down the road, which is what you would like to see a freshman. Yes, and the fact like that they that. would he's manning that spot, and I think he's basically the backup at several spots there. Correct, which I think makes sense. Having right. seen him on film now, why they have him, like he's probably the first man up if, if it needs to happen. But yes, I think I was hoping, <laughs> this is basically the Jacob Guy corollary. Uh, if you've been a long, long, long time listener to the pod during the Treon Harris, we were begging for anyone at Harris. It was Jacob Guy. We didn't even know who he was. Never seen him throw a pass, but he's somebody else on the roster. He was a walk-on who we just every week, please, something, anything different than what we know. Just play not this guy. Right. So my hope was that maybe Lindell Hudson, you know, coming in late, had been a little dinged up. He plays that he's appreciably better than what Damian George is giving you that maybe Damian George has more upside, but he's more, he's a little more solid down to down. And we didn't quite get that from him. I don't think that there's reason to play him over George and yeah, Mazuka I think is, you know, a better player right now than Harris. And so that'll be nice to have them back. Although it doesn't elevate you enough that you're like, okay, now this, what was, Subbar becomes a strength of the team. There's still a lot of holes there. But if you're looking for upside again, as I mentioned before, you get Kingsley back, you get more snaps for this unit together, that by the end of the season, they could be a more competent, cohesive group. Yeah, and they should get better. And I think the benefit here is you probably have a guy in Harris who you can play at either guard. And uh, Leonard has been surprising on the upside. That's a guy who you know we said was basically replacement level. He's playing at a better than replacement level clip now. Not again all SEC, but... Because of that, you get a little flexibility. You get some competition, basically. Where if you're Mizuka, it's it's not that you don't have a very talented guy behind you who could push you, and that's what you want on your offensive line. Those guys to keep doing what you're asking for there. Gel, work together, build cohesiveness. And at least we have one, I think, trustable backup if a guard were to go down. Florida can probably replace that with minimal kind of uh, difficulty. But again, I think anything else that occurs is a, is a step down for Florida's offensive line, with Kingsley being the most important right now. Okay. Not going forward on fourth down a couple times here. Most notably for me at the end of the game, maybe not the end of the game, the last field goal, fourth and one down near the goal line is, or not the goal line. I think it was maybe about the 10-yard line. Like, why not? What's the downside of going for it there? The game is in hand try to punch in a touchdown that's going to make, I think, your team and fan base feel better. And if you don't get the field goal, it, it moves you from 19 to 22, which isn't really a score difference. Like still two scores. Still two scores. It does push your... So Billy, I thought, was a little cagey with this. He mm-hmm. mentioned that anal, that's the analytics play. And I need to see the analytics on that. I did not look up that exact situation. But, you know, I'm obviously, if all of you know, a massive proponent of the rule of scores. And to me... The three scores is the game over knockout punch. You get an absolute win rate. And to your point, the risk of that at that point in time has got to be so small. This is the key when you're looking at these analytics charts. You hear it in our coaching corner every week. Who's your opponent? What can you do versus them? Are you on the road or are you at home? What's your defense playing like? And in that case, I think the risk of going for that is so minimal. As late in the game as it and was. And the reward is so high. Psychological boost to your fans. Absolute knockout punch to make sure the game is totally over. Like it, it to me, that's when you have to say maybe the analytics give you a point, you know, tiny little edge, point one percent, point two percent edge, and you say, yeah, but in this particular situation, it probably flips the other way. Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't 
I didn't love that, obviously. But in general, I hated the not going for it on fourth downs. And I think it set part of the tone for the game. Charlotte's getting walloped. It's fourth and one inside the 10-yard line on the very second drive. And Florida, inexplicably, after getting stopped on third and one, elects to kick a field goal. Yeah, now, you strange. could argue, let's give Trey Smack some reps. That's not the time for that. Let that happen later, right? Like what are that that just sets the tone. Like I, I don't like that at all. Again, I think you get no energy from that. In fact, you lose energy. And I'll tell you why. If the offense doesn't get that, the fans are upset because you don't get it, but the defense comes out and people are fired up. Let's get a stop. Let's keep them back. But you get a field goal, you almost sucked all the air out of the stadium. Like we're twenty eight point favorites versus Charlotte. And I know Billy afterwards said they got two guys, one at Bama, one at Michigan. They have some edge rushers. Like, come on, Billy. Like that to so, me, I don't love that mentality. I didn't love it the next time we did it. I didn't like it any of the times we did it, except for the long field goal, because they're in the red zone, fourth and three, fourth and one, and to the 10. The analytics, back to tile this together, would clearly tell you to go for all of those situations. So it's pretty cute to me that we're going to answer the question late in the game. The analytics say I took a field goal when all the other analytics would have said you should have gone for it. So it's pretty cute that you like marry those the wrong way. It's not consistent. I think ultimately illustrates the reality of Billy Napier. He's far closer to Will Muschamp than any of us would want him to be. Oh, that's just the careful. reality of what we see. He's not careful slaying but that. But the scared around. money, the scared money don't make money. Show me where that's been Florida's mentality. I think. We've seen two games in a row now where it's very tight reins on what's happening. And again, he's not Will Muschamp, but I mean, he's closer to Will Muschamp than he is to a Dan Mullen or a Steve Spurrier, obviously, or even a Ron Zook. So I do think we went for fourth down a lot last year and had, we did. you true. know, mixed success with it. That's right. Because we had no defense. So I think he felt like he had to do it. Well, but now you got the Muschamp and defense in there. Maybe yes, and I think if you're a high-flying offense and you're playing an overmatched opponent, it's like, you're like, ah, oh, let's kick the field goal, whatever. It doesn't matter because you're going to win a if million. If you're a high-flying offense, you just go for it. Well, that's true you as well. You clearly are a Jaguars fan, and I clearly am a Dolphins oh, fan. get out of here. With my boy Mike McDaniel lighting the scoreboard I'm up. just saying it would be a less consequential decision because you're going to score a million points. But this, I think you, if you're going to be a like ball-dominant top time possession kind of team you have to pick up fourth and ones yeah that's your ethos yeah you have huge offensive linemen for this reason right you want to power people of course so, you zone run but you also gap run like you you need to be you need to set the tone for them early in the game that you are not going to stop us twice in a row we're not going to wave the white flag and say hey you got us field goal time right and i think florida goes in again if you start to spread the score out in this game then you almost can't play jalen jones that much you ha- or you have to do weird stuff to oh, get... Oh, the game, the game gets so out of hand. Yeah. Correct. And so I think some of those decisions, while they don't seem that consequential at the time, ended up having a lot of like game effect to it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to kill Billy on this. I don't want to toss around any pejoratives like Will Muschampion, you know, or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, did we just said it. I just said it was close. It's close. To that, it's close. But that, careful you know. when you invoke that name, all right? We already invoked it last time. Yeah, we did. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> But that was a very specific thing. But it does worry me in these situations that if we're going to play that conservative, the defense is good, but it's it's still a young defense and against an elite opponent, you cannot play that way. Like you, like you will have to be much more yeah. aggressive. You want to always look at giving yourself the max margin of error to win. If that's the if that's the biggest critique I can have so far in the Billy Napier offensive era, 
It's that Florida yeah. plays almost on purpose with the least margin available to win, which is too conservative. And on defense, why I love Coach Ham so much is he's the opposite. He is pushing for max, literally max opportunity, which is why on third and 23, Florida has like a lot of plays this year where they've gotten no yards on third and 23. Most DCs would say, hey, you can have 15 yards here. Not Armstrong, not Coach Ham. I love that mentality. And I think that's why Florida fans love them too. So I'd like to see more of that on offense. But to your point, each each week on the podcast, obviously I like Billy. He was my number one choice for a coach to come in. Yes, we're he very invested in the Billy test. Napier project. And I think, as we said earlier, to rehash all this, I think Florida is much closer now to being a championship team than we have been since Urban. I think we're one piece away. Obviously, we'll change special teams, but that's relatively simple, right? But we're an offense away. Scheme-wise, I think fit-wise, school image-wise, we're an offense away from having everything, theoretically, you would need. Theoretically. That's closer than we have been. And I don't think anything is stopping Billy from wanting to be good on offense. In fact, I think he wants to be great on offense. He's an offensive guy. He was a quarterback. He's not Will Muschamp in that regard, right? He's not. But we need production. We have to have offensive production if we're going to win championships down the road. Period. we got to get it. I don't care how it happens. It's got to happen. And that so far has been the major weakness on this football team through two years, last year and this year, just not consistent when it comes to moving the football. Okay. We talked about Trey Wilson a little bit in terms of players elevating this offense, right? So we saw him at the very beginning of the Tennessee game. He's gone. I I don't know if he's going to play this week against Kentucky. We don't have that kind of information here on a Monday afternoon. Um, But let's say he gets back at some point. How much, well, a healthy Trey Wilson, and you know, I'm envisioning guys in the future, but let's talk about him in specifically elevate the dynamism of the offense, right? Does it start to unlock more things that looked very nice having him out there? We're using him on sweeps and doing things, right? Yeah, you know, I asked last week, can you actually give him the ball that much? But if he's healthy, is that enough of an X factor to make this offense much more productive or is it just slide the needle a little bit? No, I think it does because I think, again, this is this is kind of what I'm going to continue to call the low margin of error way to win. You say consistently probably behind closed doors, I need more playmakers. I need more playmakers on my team. Now, look, it's true that you need more playmakers on your offense, but to something I've gotten in endless debates with one Tyler Rummery on and to reference again the Dolphins, go Dolphins, right? Um when you talk about their store performance yesterday, they did it without Jalen Waddle, who's a baller. Now, they still have tons of talent, but they also did it with other guys, other teams didn't necessarily care about, Mostert, you know, tight ends that no one cared about. Like, So you have to have your horses. You have to have those guys. But you also have to be able to succeed if you don't have all of them. I think Billy would tell us, I need all my playmakers there. Because if I have Trey, it changes what the defense does. And that is true. That is factual. The Chiefs without Kelsey are not the same team. Got to have talent. Got to have talent. But to your point, I do think that Trey is probably the most significant player on Florida's offense because nobody respects Ricky running that jet sweep, not his skill set. They respect it when Trey is there. And if Trey can run that jet sweep, it opens up other parts of the offense that are not open right now. It opens up the split zone game. It opens up the counter game. It changes how Florida runs the football. It changes how many people they put in the box. It changes a lot of stuff. And I think that's where Billy argues, now give me lagway, give me Trey, give me a vertical receiver, and I'm going to show you what's up. The problem is almost all of Billy's offense, including Louisiana, and here relies on like these continual one-on-one wins. That, to me, outdated offensive mindset. I want to see wide-open guys and easy throws. But to your point, yes, Trey will make a significant 
difference in this offense's ability to gain yards because he can make guys miss. So can ETN. You have two guys in the same time in the game that can make guys miss from the line of scrimmage or behind it. That gives your team space to operate. Very, very important that Trey is healthy for this campaign for Florida. Yeah, so I was thinking about this as we were reading our thread, and I didn't have time to put it in, but like the inverse of that philosophy is basically like Mike Leach's air raid. I'm going to take a bunch of guys you never heard of, right. and I'm going to have a top-tier offense running a scheme that just produces positive plays, right? Yep. And you're not going to know who the quarterback is, and the receivers are going to be whatever. And sometimes if they're good, it'll make it way more effective. Correct. But I can do that without optimal pieces without big recruiting. Right. So I, but there's, there's a ceiling to that too. There right? is. Sure. He never won a title right. with that. No team has won a title, just running an all passing air raid offense. Right. And passing is far more efficient than running, but you need both of them because it, it optimizes, it optimizes your football team to have both. Right. So again, we we need the playmakers. That's going to open things up and that's going to help Florida have a lot. Okay. Must have both. That's right. what we're saying. You must have both talent on offense, calling plays, designing plays, talent, on the field all right other ways to improve well i think we already know so if you're new to the podcast you've heard us talk a lot about this but i think in general uh one something everyone's been calling for we called for it last year and etn is clearly the best running back that florida has florida's blessed to also have montreal who's a solid running back but alan the numbers from last year and this year could not be more clear the missed tackle rate, the broken tackle rate, the yards per carry, they all favor ETN significantly. ETN is running at an elite level right now with his missed tackle and broken tackle rate. He is the most dangerous player on Florida's offense. I hope the eight touches he got in this game was to rest him because yeah. Billy plans on using him more. Billy has a great history of playing the best guy. I don't have a real fear that Billy won't do that. I think that's what he will do. Montreal is Billy's guy, though. This will be a very hard decision if all of a sudden the snap count starts going the way it should go, 60, 65, 70% to ETN. That will not be easy emotionally because Montreal's a good runner, but ETN's going to have to get as many touches as possible, again, because Florida's playing with a tiny margin for error. And if we're going to run the offense we run, you need your best playmaker to catch the ball as much as possible. Yes, and I want to I say this is what I would have done were I Billy in this game. If you're thinking about the plan, if things go According to plan, like things go well. Montreal's going to get 10 carries. ETN's going to get five. We're going to give 15 carries to Treyon Webb in the second half and then whoever else yep. down the line. Obviously, the game did not go that way. So I, I'm i fine actually going, we're going to win this game without loading up ETN with unnecessary carries. Right? I, I'd rather have a suboptimal game and have him healthy for later contests. Now, again, because that's like people asking, are we just holding stuff back in earlier games? Are we not showing? I was like, no, I don't think that's the case. I, I do think that is the probability here because that's what I would have done. I would have not given him that many snaps. There's there's no real reason to other than a more impressive showing against Charlotte. But I care less about that than I do having him healthy for the entire season. Yeah, and I, we're going to hope that's the case. So we're bringing it up now to watch what happens versus Kentucky. Because this is where you need to see ETN have more carries than Montreal. Unless Montreal is on fire. Obviously, like in the NFL, sometimes you get a hot hand. Give it to that guy. Yeah. But if Montreal is seeing the field well or it's working, hey, fine. He'll out he'll out carry ETN on that day. But in general, especially if ETN is out 
out earning him yards per carry, you got to give ETN more carries. So let's watch for that this weekend. Secondarily, of course, something we've been saying, the offense, I don't care how it happens. We've talked a lot about my preferred preference for passing style and design, period. Regardless of how you do it, we have to become more productive on passing downs. I'm going to talk about Florida's success rate here right now on passing downs. And this is a large reason why, of course, on episode one this season after Utah, we talked about how the best thing I think Florida can do in the future to cover that three-legged stool. One is culture, two is recruiting, that's your talent acquisition, and three obviously is going to be on-field coaching. Defense check, offense, not a check. Hence, we should hire an offensive coordinator and Billy should remove himself from offensive play duties, leading Billy to become a CEO-style coach. I think he's very well-suited to do, right? That's, that's obviously our narrative. I'm repeating it in case you're new. That's where we are with this. We believe in that strongly. That being said, the success rates for Florida offense this year might surprise some of you. I'm going to take out McNeese State because McNeese State significantly bumps up Florida's numbers. All right, so we're middling, which meets what you'd expect to do. We're middling. But again, success rate, as we defined earlier, right? How many yards you're gaining per play based upon the situation. So overall, Florida's about 38th on offense, which is maybe better than some of you might be thinking it is. Success rate. Correct. State. I'm taking out McNeese, right? 38th. Here is here is the key to Billy's offenses. Almost every year, Billy's standard down, standard down success is actually pretty good. So right now, our standard down, we're 25th. We're 25th. He's generally in the top 25 on standard down rate, even all the way back through Louisiana, which again, watching Florida, oftentimes that tends to be true. Standard downs, again, as a reminder, right? Or any down that's going to be first down, any first down. And then, of course, any down that's second and, you know, seven or shorter or third and five and shorter. Standard downs. Pretty good there. Generally top 25. Where he's continually not solid is going to be on passing downs. Second and seven or longer, third and five or longer. This is obviously also going to pass your own experience test with Billy. Right now, we're 70th, 70th in the country. And he tends to average between 55th and 90th depending on where you go. He had one really good year at Louisiana in 2018 where he was like top 20. But generally speaking, good standard downs, not so good passing downs. Now, what's really interesting is pass play success rate is pretty good. We're 30th in pass play success rate. Our run play success rate this year, we're 55th. Yeah. And that's an inversion of normal Billy. So what that tells you is something you've also seen. We have had a decent amount of successful passing plays. Most of them are short. They're east-west. We said in Tennessee, those are not sustainable in the long run, but they have been successful, relatively speaking. The run plays have not been as successful, which hurts Billy's offense. But most importantly, the major smoking gun, which I keep equating to play design, is passing down inadequacy. And that has followed Billy for his coaching career at Louisiana and Florida. And that is a major problem because good football teams need to be able to get out of second and seven and longer or third and five and longer at least enough to gain some first downs. You just can't win if teams know they get you third and six and you're not going to convert, but one out of three times, that is not going to work. And that's where Florida's got to improve. That is the smoking gun for improvement. It's got to improve. If it doesn't, I think Billy's going to continue to have a really hard time getting it done on offense very interesting look at those numbers there hopefully that was illuminating for everybody all right let's talk about those not so special teams uh let's start with the good or maybe the great trace mack wins the kicking job 
goes five for five. He needed to do that, including a 54-yarder. It's funny, and at the the 54-yard field goal, the announcer was like, oh, they're probably going to punt here. I was like, do not punt here. I hate punting at that part of the field, by the way. If you punt at that part of the field, I'm so mad. Especially if you have a guy who can make a 54-yarder. Like right. Can. I think that's the key is you wanted to give him that rep. This guy's got a huge leg. Well, that's go perfect. for it. That's perfect time to give Go him for it. Rep. Don't punt it. Anyway, sorry. Um, that was great. He nailed it. That would have been good from 65. Easy. Jeremy Croshaw has another nice day. Finally a nice day. He, we, yes. we, we needed that. I think Another that, nice day from like the, the days in the past. context of his normal career. Yeah. Right. Doesn't shank any. No. Um, Two good punts. So that's good. Right, we've been very critical of the game changers, as everyone else has been. Yeah, on that. Um, but here's a tough one again. Several plays with just ten men on the field. That's crazy that that's still happening. I I get that there are weird circumstantial things, but obviously whatever system or process we're using to coordinate who's on the field, and we're doing a lot of young guys. I get that, but that's very surprising to me that's still happening. Shocking, unexplainable, uh, not not with excuse, right? It's inexcusable. It cannot be allowed. You cannot continue to do this. That is gross negligence. It didn't cost you in this game. It's going to cost us again at some point. Changes have to be made. Definitely. Someone's going to just dial up something next time we run two guys out on the field and wherever we're at. Uh, we'll get to Notre Dame in a little bit. I was going to say, but... I mean, you saw it really probably cost Notre Dame a win potentially, but... It cannot happen on special teams. It just cannot happen. Especially it once it's been happen. exposed as a thing that's already, already happened. happened. If this happened this game, it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, we're playing a ton of young guys. And at the expense of playing them, we realized, okay, we didn't prep them well enough. But we already knew this is a problem, and that's that's not good. Not good. Okay. Coaching decisions. Let's do a Charlotte coaching decision. Yeah, we already talked about Florida's on the fourth downs. Well, here's the one that drove me crazy for Charlotte. Charlotte's down... Still in the game, 19 to 7. They're only down 12. 19 7. They don't go, or maybe it's 22 7, but regardless, they're down two scores this yeah. point in time. They do not go for it on fourth down and five from their own 10 yard line with four and a half minutes left. You're basically waving the white flag at that point. You're in the game. Like to me, Biff is like, I just don't want it to get too far out of hand. Like, dude, you could win the football game. Go for it on fourth and five. Get it. Drive down and score. You have you have timeouts left. You could actually win this game. That was terrible. That was unbelievable. If I'm so doing a Charlotte podcast, players. I'm spending half my time on that. Like, what are you doing? Those guys were dying on the field for you, and you make them come off the field in that moment. I mean, that's sick. That made me sick. I hated that. That's gross. So there you go for that. There you go, decision. Biff All right. Final thought here. Just one here. Utah. Still no cam rising. Is now four and Picks just dominates UCLA defensively. UCLA had looked kind of nice coming in. They pick up another win. So I know we just had a lackluster showing against Charlotte, but coming off a top eleven win against Tennessee, does Utah's continued success give you a more positive view of the overall trajectory of the team in hindsight? Well, I think it. I think in fairness to us, we had said all along that Florida had a ton of coin flip games. I want to say we fairly evaluated where Florida could be uh, with with how they would win. Now, I think what Utah offers me is a positive view of the power of playing really good defense and not turning the ball over on offense in a disaster scenario. 
They don't want to play the way they're playing. They have to. They're missing still their most key players on a team that doesn't have the depth to just put in a five-star behind those guys. Again, you have to have your top-level talent. So my hat's off to them for that. I think the key here is that Utah's defense is obviously very good. We knew they're organized. We said so on the pod. This unit plays well, right? Uh, But I could not be more impressed with Utah. That's my takeaway. Stealing wins from Baylor. Stealing a win here from UCLA, who gave up a pick six on the opening drive of the game. And then Utah only scored one touchdown. And UCLA scored one touchdown. So again, Utah's putting a blueprint out there. You can win football games in ugly rock fights. It can be done. Florida might be on that path, but certainly Florida obviously does not have shame losing to a Utah team, but also this is really important. I'm going to keep making this point. Florida is far more talented than UCLA and Baylor. They just are. I don't care that we're younger. I get all that. Utah is playing without 10 of their dudes, eight of their dudes versus us. We are a lot. Go look it up. We're a lot more talented than UCLA and Baylor. Florida should have given a much better effort against Utah. That's in the past. We're dead with that. But to your point, what if Utah's, you know, one and three right now? How do we feel then? They're not. They're undefeated. They're still right around the top 10. So if they get their players back, they might make a significant run. Yeah, I just think. Uh, so it's pretty good. If you're looking for positive narratives. It is positive. That's what I'm saying. About yeah. the offense specifically. Right. That, okay, they're going to give everybody fits. And Florida maybe makes a few different places in that game. Right. Could have won it. And if it was just that game, yeah. I would agree with That's the thing, right? It's never just that game for Florida. Yeah. That's right. the problem. It's USF last year. It's Kentucky last year. It's already multiple games this year. So, yeah, you're right. If that was one game, you're like, hey, whatever, man. Utah's got a great defense. That can happen. It's watch football. Does Joe Burrow suck this year? Maybe. But right in general, the guy's a baller. He had some really bad games. Like college football's brutal because you can't escape your one bad game because the season requires you to win almost all your games. So, yes, it's a good point, Alan. That result isn't as bad. And if it was just isolated, I'd feel way better, but it's not. Okay. The news, very weird news from the Kamari Wilson. He apparently did not make the 80-man roster. Was on the field at some point, kind of got escorted off. They didn't really comment on it too much. Um, seems like his time is over with the program if you're reading the tea leaves. Or I mean, they're not even tea leaves, reading the road signs. Uh, which has got to be a major disappointment for the staff. He was their biggest recruiting win in that first class and really hasn't to say he hasn't lived up to that would be an understatement. So that's, that's pretty tough. We'll see what happens from here, but that seems the way it's going to go. Yeah. We had heard rumors in the off season. He probably wasn't going to make it even to this season Enter the transfer portal in the spring didn't happen. So I think this is, I'm going to chalk this up to not a surprise, Obviously also unfortunate, but I think one thing, again, culture-wise, three-legged stool, Billy is very strong on building a family that has individual responsibility. And he's not going to be a coach that tolerates any player who may potentially be putting himself above the team. And I don't know the exact situations. I hear the rumors of this one, but I think this is probably more of a culture issue than anything else. All right, let's look at the week four results. Alan, you went four and five. I went three and six. You're now 23 and 22 on the season. I'm 21 and 24 on the season. So you've got a nice little lead on me. Number 16, Oklahoma went on the road to Cincy, took care of business, winning 20 to six, got a push with the 14 point line. Emory Jones with a very Emory Jones like line, 200 ish yards passing, I think a pick or two and one, one touchdown. Yeah, I think Oklahoma has quietly looked much improved. We'll see how the season goes along for them. 
Auburn at Texas A&M. You picked Auburn. Shame on you. Uh, A&M wins easily 27-10. Auburn, I think, had three quarterbacks combined for a total of 56 yards. I mean, something abysmal. I just figured this game was going to be weird, but it was weird in a way that I hadn't thought about. I mean, A&M defensively hadn't done much they really put it together this game so maybe they're a little bit better than i'm giving them credit for and their offense is now averaging 30 points a game so there's a nice example of a coordinator coming in and they are scoring every single week at a level that you can get wins with auburn on the other hand you're one for you freeze it's very bad he's he obviously is a great offensive mind uh but our buddy grover sent us some some great stuff saying is it the preseason yet because in the preseason there's all the hype and now Auburn yeah fans the are like, reality is there i mean i was just the worst offense that we've had to improve from where they're at right now but it's gonna be a long season for them pretty woeful all right arkansas on the road giving lsu all they could handle as an 18 point favorite you and i thought lsu had put their problems behind them that must not be true they squeak out a win 34 31 arkansas was either winning or had a chance to win this game so many times. A little coaching corner. We, do we have that in the coaching corner about letting them score? Uh, we don't, but let's do it right now. Well, yeah. They, I mean, they, they could have let LSU score at the end to have the ball back, and they didn't, and they lost. Which is, again, a crazy mistake. Uh, obviously, if you can let your opponent score, let them score. Get the ball back because a potential win rate is better than a 0% win rate. But, yeah, Arkansas – Again, a lot of Florida's opponents, like we say, these are coin flip games. You can look at Arkansas last week and think they're terrible, and then you can look at them this week and think they can play with anybody. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's hard to know what the heck a Florida's going to do, right? All right, Iowa, number 24, Iowa. Oh, man, me. Against Penn State, who a team that I keep saying I don't believe in, and Penn State shells them 31 nothing. I figured it would be, you know, 14 nothing, something like that. But Penn State against a very good Iowa defense, by the way murders them all right if you're one of those sickos out there who likes to see just road carnage go look at iowa's like stat line they're like i should have looked it up their total yard is in their first down they basically look like they didn't play it's awful so the drive to 325 for brian ference to keep his job took a big hit yeah i mean it already feels like it's just over with that result i don't even know how he could get enough results to get there he hasn't gone above the average yet all right, UCLA on the road versus Utah, a game we talked about. Utah is favored by five. You correctly picked Utah as they went 14-7 to in an absolute just slog fest. I mean, this was just wild. I mean, I didn't know Cam Rising wasn't playing when, when I picked that. So when I heard he wasn't, I was like, okay, I lost that one. But, yeah, I mean, Utah is a program. Just deep admiration for them, what they're pulling off here. And the fact that they're not the number 11 team in the country as they're currently assembled. It's kind of hilarious, but... Maybe they will be by the end of the year. They might be. I mean, most of their most talented players have not played it down yet. All right, number 14, Oregon State, in an incredible game in what they called the Pac-2 championship, I love which I loved. On the road at Washington State, the Cougs. Washington State wins in a thriller, 38-35. Yeah, they were up for most of the game. Like, you know, they started off 14-0, I think, and just kind of were able to keep that on them. And then or all of a sudden, Oregon State is back in it and – Fantastic. The Pac-12, I love them this year. I, we hate on the Pac-12. Everyone does. It is such a fun conference. It's so bittersweet that this is the last year of it. It's kind of crazy. It really is. Like They're going out on top, I guess, with regards we'll to just excitement. Have great, they're just doing this. We have great members. Like, ah, I remember the days of the Pac-12. I mean, seriously, really, it's true. All right, Ole Miss on the road to Alabama. I had picked Lane Kiffin to get it mm. done. I felt like this was his best chance versus this Bama team. In the second half, Bama looked like Bama of old, playing great defense boring offense they win 24 to 10 
Yeah, I went with Ole Miss too. I thought this is their moment. Alabama was reeling. And I, I guess I should just never underestimate. If you just went Bama on every bet, like, you know, even the spread, you'd probably come out ahead. There you go. Yeah, generally speaking, especially this Bama team that the public perceives to be way worse than they are, which is sort of criminal. It's like the demise of Nick Saban. They're just missing a quarterback. And they've got some offensive issues with their offensive line, but make no mistake about it. This team is still supremely talented. Every game they play, though, is going to be hard. They're going to be like this. They're going to have to fight for every yard this year. They're not going to get walkover wins in the SEC. All right, number 19, Colorado on the road at number 10, Oregon. Oregon was favored by 21. They went ahead and took care of business 42 to 6. Probably could have been 60 something to 6. It was had they what, not called 30 the dogs off. something at halftime. 35 nothing at halftime. They seem to relish this. I mean, all the, I mean, everyone saw the Dan Lanning. We, they're playing for clicks, we're playing for wins, you know, line of the year. But this is what I thought would happen to Colorado when they ran up against a real team and, you know, or a team that could punish them in the right ways and obviously got exposed. I mean, again, Colorado is a great story, super fun. They're way better than they were last year, but shows you how far they are from a, like a top 10 level team. And it's really hard to build the line of scrimmage. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, we said this all along. Like Colorado was escaping in large part to the Houdini like play of Sanders, who's just running around at quarterback, evading every team, sending everyone at him, completing passes. But with Oregon, and Dan Lanning, who's a, a brilliant tactician on defense, there was not really a place to go. I've been really impressed with how Dion handles things. I think a lot of people misunderstand Dion. They take it personally. They think he's trying to get them. I don't love the over-the-top braggadocious stuff. I'm going to start with that. But I think deep down inside, how Dion tends to handle things is largely surprisingly pretty well. So after mm-hmm. this game, I was really curious what he was going to say. And he was fine. Because I think Dion knew they're not ready for this yet, right? But in the meantime, complimentary of Oregon talks about how this is the worst Colorado is going to be. We're only going to wind up getting better from here. I hate losing. But, you know, it wasn't personal. He didn't say anything about Dan Lanning saying stuff. I'm sure he's frustrated he loses. But I think if you're Dion, you know that part of your brand is to put a target on your back. And if somebody beats you up, you admit it. They crushed us out there. They beat us up really badly, right? We have to get better. Uh, So, you know, I think a lot of people, again, I think they root for Dion to lose. Uh, Colorado obviously has been great for college football. There's a lot of eyeballs on these games now, but I'll be curious to see what happens to Colorado now as they enter into a very difficult part of their schedule. Alan, there yep. could be a lot of beatdowns on the horizon. Uh, it's probably going to get worse before it gets any better for them. Number four, Florida state speaking of getting worse before it gets better mm. on the road at Clemson. Uh, <laughs> you have Florida state at minus one and a half. We go to overtime in the most tragic of ways, right? All broadcast long, they're they're talking up the kicker that came back. That was a walk on. That was a backup. He makes his first field goal from thirty yards. He's got a twenty nine yarder with ninety seconds left to put him up twenty seven twenty four, and he misses it. Florida State drives down, doesn't score. They go to overtime. Florida State wins thirty one twenty four. This is the worst game of the day. I watched most of this. Clemson seeming like they had the game, and not it wasn't over, but they were about to take control. They're up seven. They're driving strip, strip sack Ugh. or basically sack fumble return for a touchdown. And then clips it at the end. Oh my gosh. Not that Florida State couldn't have scored there or tied it, but oh man, that would have been great. I mean, I think Clemson is better than they looked in week one. Florida State has 
is not as potentially dominant as they looked against LSU. So I think that seems to be clear from this game. But Florida State, a really good team still. And, man, that it only gets easier from here for them. So we'll see. Yeah, just frustrating, especially the – I'll talk about play calling, that third and one play call in overtime on, like, the whatever yard line. Clemson's on the 11-yard line. They, yeah. they run a backwards screen that loses yards, and it looks like the way Dabo reacted, that that wasn't maybe the player. They checked into it. I don't even know. And then just stuffed on fourth down. I mean, what a Clemsoning way to lose, right? If, you, if, you're, if you're old enough, you know all about Clemsoning, and that was a thing for decades, and then it kind of went away. Because they haven't kind of got rid of it. But now maybe Clemsoning is back in full effect. That game oh, featured all of it. All right, number six, Ohio State on the road. Three and a half point favorites. You picked Ohio State. I picked Notre Dame. Notre Dame takes an L, but gets a cover as they lose 17-14. Of course, all of you, I'm sure, have seen this. They played the last two plays of the game on their own goal line with just 10 men. Thoughts? I'm wild that that happened. And I think you even... I don't know what did they not know if they knew Marcus Freeman seemed like he said that we didn't want to get a penalty. You're on like the half yard line. You're going to move the ball a quarter an inch up. Like you're yeah. going to get the other guy. Also, you're not going to get a penalty because the third down was an incomplete pass. Like you had a ton of time yeah. to put your other guy out there. That's code for they just didn't realize it. But Ohio State, who looked like I mean, struggling all day, McCord, their quarterback, you know, up and down game make some really great throws to get them on down to the goal line and they put it in. I mean, that's a really fun college football game. Probably both fan bases are lightly dissatisfied. If you're Ohio State, you're hoping you have a higher ceiling than that. But that, I mean, that's college football. That was amazing. I that was a it. great game. Great atmosphere. The all green leprechaun jerseys from Notre Dame. I, I mean, like when Notre Dame is good and everyone yes. calls them overrated, but I think it's fun when they're good. It is fun. And they are good. College, they are good. That's a good football team. Look, that's a, Ohio State's offense on paper is for real. And Notre Dame stifled them almost the entire game. If it weren't for, again, that last drive, heroics. And then really, if a defensive tackle is in that gap right there, you you got to imagine Ohio State's not going to run the ball right there. And I think them passing in that tight scenario wasn't looking promising. So that is going to talk about eating at you for a long time. Not having another D tackle there or D end is going to hurt them. Other results, USC wins really close over Arizona yeah, they State. Were up big. So thankfully Arizona that game happened like back. 2 in the morning. People probably didn't pay attention. But all the way late in the fourth quarter, USC was only up by 7. Hmm. Arizona State the week before had 8 turnovers. So anyway, USC... That defense, I think, still going to concern people as far as them being a legitimate contender on offense. Obviously, they can. Yeah, it's going to cost them at some point. I think we'll see. SEC roundup, Allen. Yeah, Tennessee wins forty-five fourteen over UTSA. They had a like a Florida-like second half. They were crushing thirty-one nothing, and they kind of turned it off and went home and just saw the game out. But you know, rebound win for them. UGA wins forty-nine twenty-one over UAB again. A very sleepy start again for Georgia. Yeah, I mean, clear within one score for a while. UAB and Trent Dilfer. Uh, keeping it close. The UNB is not a good team this year. I mean, Georgia, Carson Beck looks like the real deal. His stat lines are incredible every game, despite the fact that it doesn't, they're not, they're not blowing anyone they're, out. They're starting really, really late, really slow, but again, they're undefeated and Georgia does this. So, you know, don't, don't sleep on it and being a top right. team. Missouri wins 34, 27 over Memphis. Very tight there. What an exciting ride for Missouri fans. thus yeah. far. Super cagey team. A really close one as well. South Carolina, 37-30 over Mississippi State. Mississippi State, in a lot of these games, they're 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 a little hit or miss, but they're they're competitive. Very sure. competitive. Spencer Rattler 
clearly has turned a corner now. He's putting in good performance after good performance. I mean, he is he is playing quarterback the way people thought he would have coming out of high school. Kind of took him a while to figure it out, but very dangerous. I think he's going to keep that offense in, in every game he possibly can, especially if he's not playing the elites in the SEC. Yeah, he still feels a little Jekyll and Hyde to me, but he has looked more consistent. Way more consistent. Yeah. All right, Kentucky does win 45-28 over Vandy. So good for them. We're going to talk about them a lot more. Okay, Daytona Steve, how do you do this week? Rough week for Daytona Steve. Started off hot. South Carolina favored by six and a half. He gets that win. He had USC favored by 34 over Arizona State, which did not materialize. And his parlay did not get off the ground as UCLA took a immediate L <laughs> to Utah. They were plus four, but plus four is not plus seven. So unfortunately for him, his funds now after four weeks, he started with 300. He's at 296.50. He's down. So he's treading water. So perhaps Daytona Steve needs to start swinging for the fences again, like the old school I don't Daytona know. Steve would do. Let, let the man smoke his cigs and do his bets, all right? He's doing it. He's probably reading the newspaper somewhere, too, I feel like. Down on the track. What's he's up, not, a, he's not a digital guy, you know? All right, coaching corner. Here we go. The Florida State game. Did you like Florida State going forward on 4th and 10 from Clemson's 39 with time still left in the game, or would you have wanted them to just punt and acknowledge they're going to OT? I think I would have punted. Really? All right. I thought you were going to say go for it. Uh, I don't know, man. That's really dangerous. It is dangerous. I agree. I think this is a really tough decision. Again, I'm going to I'm gonna say it comes down to whether or not you have a play that you like on 4th and 10. It seemed like Florida State was, was all over the place. They were completing some big passes, but it wasn't consistent. So I think here you, you, you probably punt and be safe to go to OT because if you don't get that, like you said, you open yourself up where Clemson in two plays could, could get down there and Kick a field goal. Again, I think what aided Florida State was that the walk-on kicker doesn't have a big leg. They probably mm-hmm. had to get 40 yards. It was worth the risk. So in that regard, probably changed the numbers there. If they get 10 yards, they get a field goal attempt and a chance to win the game, and there is no overtime. So risk-reward there. All right. Better one, though, for me, really, is this one. Clemson does get the ball back on their own 39. They gain a bunch of yards to midfield. So they gain about you know, 11, 12 yards to midfield. And then they let the clock just run out. Like the players are looking at the sideline, like Dabo's just doing nothing. Like, what do you make of that? It was weird. It's almost like they thought they were going to have more time once the ball was reset. I mean, they had. Yeah, like the clock stops, stops on a first down, but then it does always reset eventually when the ball spotted. It's like yeah, they didn't know that. It's like they didn't know it. I don't know. It was weird. So weird. I mean, you got to get a Hail Mary in there. You have to. Didn't do it. Yeah. They've also could have gone with like a 10 or 15 yard out. I mean, anyway, that's a fail. All right. Raiders. This was the one that was talked about the most. Mm. The Raiders last night <laughs> are in the red zone. They're on the eight-yard line, and it's fourth and four. Eight-yard line, fourth and four. They're down 23 to 15. If you can't do the math on that, that's eight points. That's right. There are two minutes and 22 seconds left, right? And they have one timeout. So plus a two-minute warning, they essentially have two timeouts. They choose to kick a field goal making it 23-18. Unfortunately for them, the opposition, in this case the Steelers, who had not moved the ball at all in the second half, gets a first down, bleeds almost the entire clock out. They get the ball back on their own 12-yard line with 12 seconds left. This is wild to me. I don't, to basically almost say I'm okay losing the game here. A field goal does nothing. Like, I know this. I'm not a professional coach the entire internet knows this who's 
losing it over this. It, if there's a decision that like 100% of the people would disagree with you, this isn't a coaching corner. This is just a coaching malpractice. I like that. It, it does feel like malpractice. I think this is classic overthinking. Where you're thinking to yourself, the defense has shut down the Steelers in the second half, which is true. I'll take the three. I'll stop them. I'll get the ball back with a minute and 15 seconds left. And then I'll score a touchdown and I won't need to go for two. Okay, first of all. What? That's correct. Did you just hear how many things had to go right for you? What is the correct answer? Or, Alan, you have a fourth and four on the eight-yard line where, let me remind you, if you get it, you then can score and then go for two. And if you don't get it, you may still get the ball back. You can onside kick if you score and don't get the two-point conversion. If you score quickly enough, you actually still have the two-minute warning in play and your timeout. And then all you need is a field goal. So this is indefensible, absolutely outrageous. And it comes from Josh McCown, who has a significantly McDaniels. losing record. Uh, McDaniel, sorry, not McCown. As a significant losing record as head coach in the NFL. Yep. And that's I'd, part of the reason. Why. I would hit the fire button right now. Immediately. Why would you hire him in the first place? All right, let's look at Green Bay, New Orleans Saints. The Saints are up 17-0. Derek Carr gets injured. It's unfortunate for them. The Saints have an excellent defense. There are seven minutes left in this game. Green Bay's just scored a touchdown. So they're down 17-9. They're down eight. And they go for something we have covered a lot. Yeah. But it's the first time we've seen it work. So we're going to talk about it. They go for the two-point conversion, which is the positive EV analytics move. We've discussed the actual math on the pod before. Putting them down 17-11. They then go on to score with a minute left to win 18-17 by kicking the extra point. Do you like this modern application? I mean, I think it's fun. Because I don't. the downside isn't that big, I don't think. Um and really interesting. I mean, yeah, the, the Gators did this last year, I believe, against Tennessee. They did. Mm-hmm. Correct. And it was like, oh, it's weird. And it is kind of jarring because it's unconventional. But here's the here's the you know, use case for it. It gives you a higher win rate. That's the key. right? Immediately you're thinking, but wait a minute, I lose the chance to tie. Well, oftentimes you do, but you also gain more by winning in this situation right here. So that is why it works. It's why it's useful. Uh, so... They played out right there, and they got a win. Instead of being in overtime, where they would have been, they get an outright win by taking the risk there on the two-point conversion. If they had not gotten it, they could have gone for it again. That's how the math starts to work out. You get two shots at that two-point conversion. All right, lastly, my Miami Dolphins. I'm going to call them therapy for me on Sundays offensively. Obviously, I love everything Mike McDaniel is doing, in large part because it's actually very simple. The Dolphins have the highest pre-snap motion rate of any team in the NFL by far, and they do things that are actually really relatively basic. By motioning out here and there, they create some windows, some gaps. They use the width of the field. They attack you vertically. They attack the middle of the field. Two is the right trigger man because he's very accurate. All this leads to an absolutely absurd record-breaking day where in the second half, Denver decides they don't want to tackle anybody running the ball. Miami is hilariously playing all of their roster they possibly can for the entire fourth quarter, and they're still scoring. That leads Miami to be in the red zone for a chip shot field goal up 70-20. to McDaniel who went for it on fourth down earlier to score a touchdown, (laughs) decides now I'm not going to kick this field goal. Had he kicked the field goal, it would have broken the NFL scoring record, which has been around for about 70 or 80 years The regular season scoring record. Correct. Would have broken that. He chose not to do it. If you are McDaniel, do you choose to kick this field goal here? Absolutely. Right? It's professional football. It's a record. It's a pro. Yeah. If it was just, if if it wasn't a record... I think you're just whatever. You just kneel it out. I don't. It doesn't matter. Now, of course. Oh yeah. Don't kick it then for sure. But yeah, you definitely kick it. I agree. 
I think the players are probably kind of salty like you didn't kick it. I think they probably are. Afterwards, the players unanimously said the wise thing, which is we're not here to humiliate people, which is also very funny because you just won 70 to 20 is in the NFL. Is it 70 not? 73 is humiliating and 70 is not? Yeah, no, that's humiliating already. Yeah, it is. And so I think that Sean Payton appreciated it afterwards. It looked like uh, that gesture of not kicking that field goal. But I also think, you know, if Sean Payton or an opposing coach cares, we need a bit more of an old school mentality, which is like, look, I'm a pro. My job is to stop you. You can score as many points as you want. Yeah. That's if it's on. college, that's on. I, I probably don't kick it. Yeah. But in the NFL, I agree with you. These guys are paid a lot of money to stop you. Stop me. You know yeah. what? Don't. It's not personal. Right. So either way, go Finns absolutely love what they're putting out there yeah it's magic this season on offense all right patron time let's do it let's get into all right it. let's start with the phone here drunken manatee spencer roth kyle bruliette stephen pate aaron aaron lozano kyle keaton christopher millward john wl chris Orr. what's up man robert iced bay sure all right shaka shakes love chris, this one every time shaka, shaka shakes, shakes. Oh, that's so good chris hall Patrick Hannon, Kerry David, Matthew Roberts, Russell and Vicky Hall, Nathan Roberson, TJ Nowick, Chris Pabst, Brad Cluxton, Sarah Hannah Thomas, Ocho Gringo, <laughs> which is also great, John Bland, David Meadows, Robert Davies, Colin Curtis, Megan Gibson, Bruno DeMello Ligieri, Kyle Moore, Rob Lunsford, Jared. I love that you let me just hop in on the single name. Yeah, I, uh, I was going to give you the proofs, and I was like, I can't give James no, no. that one. Jared, love that. Uh, Jose Flores, Thomas Upshaw, Richie Caldo, George Cretenmeyer, or Cretenmeyer, or write yeah, me if it's good. wrong, Sam Hadley, Alexander Leventhal. How are you, Alexander? It's been quite some time. You were the, the GNFP king for so long, uh, and I know you're out there doing some great stuff, but you know, hit me up. Robin McElroy, what's up, Smack? Jeff Tillman, I mean, this is like all my people. What's up, Tillman? Uh, James Maynard, Raul, Tim, Evan Fitzgerald, Joshua Javahari, who is the <clears throat> Javahari, sorry, who is the Java GNFP Discord oh, well, starter. There, there he is right there. Hans Lopez, what's up, Hans? Larry Medvinsky, Brian, Bobby Boucher, the legend, the legend of Bobby Boucher, more legendary than any of you actually know if you knew his real name. Uh, Connor Salas. Alex Breo, Peter Guillarte, or Guillarte, or Guillarte, yeah, why not? Wade Bayless, yo, what's up, Wade? Taylor Lacroix, Tim Tebow, good to have you in, Tim. Man, always great that you support Tim. John Curto, Christina Frost, representing the females. Thank you, Christina. Aiden Augustin, friends of, uh, in fact, Alexander Leventhal, followed closely by a friend of the esteemed Alexander Leventhal. So they're both right there at the same time. Very nice of them. And then Michael Varley. Thanks to all of our patrons. We read you out each and every year to thank you. We appreciate all the support you've given us. And with that, from one fan to another of the GNFP, we have a new live read. Do it. I'm loving this. I'm loving the fans and the supporters of the pod hopping in on this. So here is the live read brought to you by Amira Custom Homes. If you're looking to build a custom home, we got you here in the GNFP. That's right. We go from anything here, Alan. Manscaped, AG1, <laughs> uh, you know, games that you can play, obviously, to run franchises, whatever you need. As Gator fans, we remember how smooth that 08 offense ran. Mm. We did. Right? We both went. Mm. So nice. When choosing a custom home builder in Alachua County, so if you're a local, here you go, you're going to want a builder who is able to operate the custom home building process just as smoothly. That That's facts. You definitely don't want to have a not smooth home building process. Corey Amira with Amira Custom Homes in Alachua has the experience with design build custom homes to handle your build through the drafting stage until the end of construction from start to finish. 
delivering a high-quality custom home that your family will be proud of. You can check out Corey's work and previous builds at amiracustomhomes.com. That's amiracustomhomes.com, A-M-I-R-A, right there. Thanks, Corey. Appreciate you hopping on the pod here for this live read, and obviously check out some of Corey's work if you are looking to build a home in the Alachua County area. With that, Alan, it is time for the prep on the Kentucky Wildcats. Become quite a thorn in the Gator side. Okay, this game is happening at noon. Number 22, Florida, 3-1 and one versus number 25, Kentucky, 4-0. and oh. They are favored by three points. Kentucky has wins over a very prestigious list here. A real murderer's row of Ball State, Eastern Kentucky, Akron, and Vandy. So I'll say we have very little idea of what this Kentucky team is actually like. They've not been tested at all. But before we get in, to the nitty gritty. Uh, this is quickly becoming one of my favorite moments here. Big homies culture corner. I'm going to read the first one here. This is the mascot background he provided us. And <laughs> my note here is that it's not historically accurate. So just be prepared that he has been very historically accurate. This entire this, this Kentucky is prep is not historically accurate except for some moments. You're going to so, you're going to hear big homies uh antipathy towards yes. Kentucky. Enjoy here. Okay. enjoy this. This is what I would say to you. The original mascot was a snaggletooth pig farmer named Slant Tooth Sammy. He lived in the hills of Kentucky and ride his pig-driven hell sleigh down for football games to cheer on the team. However, he would raid the villages when the team would lose, stealing any cousin he could find, moonshine, and food for his mountain-dwelling demon swine. That's a picture. Of I can't him believe here, I which is read outrageous. That. Just yeah. looking at looking at the snaggletooth pig farmer named Slantu Sammy here is wild. Yeah. Later, partially due to the diminishing cousin population, the official nickname for the University of Kentucky athletics team was changed to the Wildcats. That is true. The nickname became synonymous with UK shortly after an actual Wildcat chased off Slantu Sammy during one of his vicious cousin stealing raids after a disappointing loss to Integration University. <laughs> It was a barn burner of a game when Kentucky couldn't hold on and succumbed by the score of 5-2 in 1909. 1909 is the right date, though, which is pretty good. Okay, great. that's good. Some old guy told a group of students at church the next morning that Kentucky football team had fought like Wildcats, and it was in 1909 Kentucky, so that's why they named the that team. That is also actually true. <laughs> this is great that you have to give like a what is real and what is not. <laughs> All right, the University of Kentucky adopted the blue and white as its official colors in 1892. Good job by them holding it on. Originally, however, UK students had decided on blue and light yellow in 1891. The shade of blue, which is close to a royal blue, was chosen when a student... <laughs> Not true, coming, okay. by the way. <laughs> I'm reading this out loud. Having to I'm wait, loving what? this. It's great. Which is close to a royal blue, was chosen when a student with an IQ above 75 asked the question, what color blue? At the time, a football player who could not identify colors with words pulled off his ne- necktie and held it up. The students then let out a harmonious hillbilly screech signifying they agreed, a.k.a. Kentucky democracy. He's got a you need a job writing copy. He is honestly killing. it. All right. A year later, the students officially dropped the light yellow color for white. (laughs) All right. The bluegrass state, of course, most of you know, that's its nickname from a species of green grass introduced by European settlers. The settlers chose the nutrient dense grass to feed the uglier wives and sisters who had enlarged teeth and could not fit into the barns. Generations later, about 12 years in Kentucky, 
Once the women and their teeth had reduced in size, they found it was a great source of food for horses and the booming thoroughbred industry. I can't wait till the Kentucky fans listen to this podcast. Every every week, the opposing fans teams will listen to this podcast, and hopefully they realize this is complete satire, as we are always totally respectful of all fan bases. <laughs> and I've been to Kentucky Rupp Arena. Uh, you know, Kentucky's a great state, but this is obviously all for fun. Farmers also found the horses were much more attractive to look at than their own wives. And up until 1828, the women were still not allowed to sleep in the barns. So that is how it became the bluegrass state, according to Big Homie. This is like Big Homie's uh, folk tales here. All right. This is, he has a section called Trash Program. <laughs> Since its beginnings in 1892, Kentucky has won 583 games and has 579 losses. However, they also tied 44 times, meaning their all-time win percentage is actually sub-500 at .483, which is a very Kentucky football thing. Yeah. I so guess that's a true stat. There you go. Yeah, that's, that's real. Again, facts from fiction here. Actual facts now. He actually has a segment that says actual facts. <laughs> to this day, Kentucky's governors must swear an oath before taking office that they have never fought a duel with deadly weapons. Great. The McCoy family from the infamous Hatfield and McCoy Wars were from Kentucky. Ironically, Kentucky has the fifth highest poverty rate in the lower 48, while simultaneously housing the largest gold storage facility in the world, Fort Knox. Have you ever seen Goldfinger of the James Bond fame? Fort Knox featured there. And Pikeville, Kentucky leads the nation in Pepsi consumption per capita. Big Homie says these people are not to be trusted. As a lover of Coke, I totally agree. All right, you want to do the fan reputation? Fan reputation. All right, if you've never been to a Kentucky game in Lexington, don't, says Big Homie. I actually never have been. It's one of the few stadiums I've not been to. been to basketball, not football. As a Gator fan growing up, I was always told, don't go to a game in Death Valley, or you might get into trouble at Doak. No one ever said a bad word about Lexington, so I figured it was safe. This was not the case. My entire experience at the game in 2019 cannot be read on this podcast, but Big Blue Nation is not a pleasant group. I can say that. As I sat front row behind the Gator bench, floated down 18 points, Big Blue Nation cheered as Felipe Franks laid on the ground, withering in pain late in the third quarter. I could literally hear him screaming from my seat. The subsequent quarter of football was then glorious as Kyle Trask was introduced to the world and slowly and methodically drained Kroger Stadium of its vile enthusiasm. Kentucky fans are dirtbags. This is the official opinion of Big Homie, not the GNFB beat Kentucky. So wow. I think it's, fa- it's safe to say that Big Homie probably hates Kentucky more than anyone I know. I mean, he hasn't done that on any. He's on any. Written such and a generally speaking, about I mean, I, I don't like Kentucky fans because of basketball. I used to go to all the SEC championships and uh, in Atlanta growing up, and they're like Big Blue Nation, you know, Catlanta and all that stuff. They were just so annoying, but they weren't like mean per se. So Big Homie really had a heck of a time there. there you go. Uh, obviously, at any rate, again, all in fun there. Uh, that's that's all in jest and fun, not not serious. All right, let's talk about this Kentucky team. Mark Stoops' his 10th year there. I'm going to read a great quote from him today. I loved it. People were asking him about the noon kick, and he says, Which well, is I'm, 11 a.m. their time. Yeah, I have great confidence in the people of Kentucky to get up very early and pound some beers. Why would you disrespect this great state and the people of it by even asking that question? He jokes. So great job by him. Uh, <laughs> talking about the early kick in the Kentucky fan base, see if they live up to it. Talent, a push, says we've got a new index, a the new Danny index, Kent index. Okay, he emailed us. Look all the way. Thank you. Also, Ben Ben Sykes, Benjamin Sykes has been emailing us a lot of great data too, and we appreciate this. So if it's good enough and we like it, or you want to do it on a weekly basis, Ben, that's to you as well. Weekly basis, you want to send some snippets in, we'll give you a named thing. But Danny Kent did a lot of work. 
And what he did was he took the recruiting rankings. So we had been using the regular recruiting rankings. He then broke it down into ones and twos, starters and your second depth charts, and then also added in experience. So if you're like three years in the system and you were a five-star and you played, then you're going to get a higher score than a freshman five-star. All these things make sense. And then therefore gets an aggregate score of what this looked like. I am simply giving this advantage offense, advantage defense for you, the listener, so you can know taking into account years of experience and actual talent, according to the 247 composite, what it looks like on the field. So, Alan, without further ado, what does it look like on the field? We call it a push, but why is it a push? Well, Kentucky has the advantage on offense in terms of the Danny Kent index, the DKI. As That's right, the it DKI. Right I like that. And then UF advantage on defense. There you go. So there's more talent on Florida's defense compared to Kentucky's defense, and there's more talent on Kentucky's offense compared to Florida's offense, given the DKI. There you have it. New feature. All right. Love it. All right, coaching staff. Liam Cohen was the Rams OC in 2022. Was at Kentucky. So this is uh, – Will Levis had this great year with Liam Cohen. Cohen leaves. Not so good. They bring him back. Uh, Brad White is in his 50 year there. He's been there a while. Devin, on the personnel, Devin Leary, a well-known name, had been at NC State for a while, high-profile guy, is now at Kentucky. Ray Davis – if you remember from the Vanderbilt game last year, tore us up, torched us. So they've got three receivers who are kind of equal in targets. Barry and Brown. These are names you will know if you watched the game last year, kind of their deep deep threat, Dane key and Tavian Robinson, the other two guys. Um, So they have some guys who've played a lot, not necessarily all at Kentucky, but um, a decent amount of returning talent, if you will. This is what makes me excited on the scouting report segment here is the whole reason I debuted success rate on this podcast and not last year or earlier was because I was waiting for a disconnect like this one to illustrate why I like the stats so much because success rate almost always backs up what I see on film anyway. And that's what's nice because what I'm going to read you first does not back up largely what you see on film with Kentucky. Here you go. Here's the traditional scouting report. 55% pass, 45% run. Here's a fact, though, that is true. They are third in the country right now on explosive plays. They are generating a ton of home run hitting plays. Here come some stats that you might make make you believe Kentucky's offense is awesome if you just look at these. They are eighth in yards per play, a generally really good stat. They are third in points per play. They are 14th in third down conversion at 50%. They are number one in red zone scoring at 100%. They are number 11 at yards per rush and number 24 in yards per pass. So that seems pretty great, Alan. They're not giving up a lot of sacks. They have thrown a lot of picks. They're 113th in interceptions thrown. They have been careless with the ball in that regard. If instead we look at success rate, get ready for your mind to be blown. Success rate. That's kind of the topic of this podcast, I feel like. Overall, they are 87th in the country in success rate. They are 116th on standard downs. They are 31st on passing downs. They are 82nd on passing plays, which tells you a lot of their success on passing downs has not come from passes. And then their run play success, very important here, they are 74th. Those so are wild. Those are so wild disconnect, right? And the reason why, if you're asking, how is this possible? How can I have these yards per play stats and these other stats that seem to be so good for such a high yards per play? 
How is this happening? The answer is very simple. Kentucky is either generating explosive plays for touchdowns or nothing at all. They're an absolute boomer bust team and they're doing it versus inferior opponents, which is not what success rate accounts for. But what it's telling you is each individual play, what is the likelihood of success? So here you go, Alan. If I run eight plays, seven of them go for zero yards. One goes for 90 yards. You can do the yards per play math yourself there. It's pretty daggone good. Imagine this happening over and over again. If I just use yards per play, I'm going to get a nice ranking. But if I look at seven or eight of my nine plays not being successful, the reality is my offense is actually not very successful on a drive-by-drive basis. So Kentucky, the ultimate example right now of a boom or bust offense And that's largely why their own fans have been like, this has not been a great start to the year. We have not been that impressive, despite these really good-looking numbers. And that is why I waited for that moment. In reality, Kentucky's offense has issues. However, they have been scoring big play touchdowns. And if you've watched Florida play, Florida is not doing that versus inferior opponents. Kentucky is. That's going to be, spoiler alert, a key to this football game. Kentucky's thriving on those plays. If you don't allow them to get those plays, they have not proven they are a team that will consistently generate positive yardage per play, even though right now that average looks good. So hopefully that gives you an idea of what we're looking at. Well, that's funny because that that, ge- that gels with what how Florida's played against Kentucky when they've lost. I'm thinking of the Mullen game, even the Will Levis game last year, where they basically hit two or three big plays and won the game. Florida kind of imploded and more lost the game. They didn't really do anything outside that Will Levis bomb. There's a couple other things that they did. So if that, again, if you hit enough of those, it doesn't matter that your success rate is low, but it just feels unsustainable over a longer period. Right. What that means is you're not going to be a championship caliber team, but versus a team like Florida, to your exact point, who also has issues, right? You can get in these scenarios, but yeah, that's a good, um, that's a good example of exactly what that looks like. So that's how you can get those huge differences. Thought it'd be something fun for you guys to get acclimated to. All right. Now to clean up the finish or rather the finish of the rest of the scouting report, tendency wise, uh, a whopping 33% of their passes are on play action. They're running a ton of stuff under center this year. So Cohen likes to run a lot of under center. Anyway, they're running even more under center, than what they ran before not a lot of pre-snap motion almost no rpos and they do not run tempo so they are basically going to line up and run what looks to be imagine the rams offense in la but even simpler just a simplified version of that offense so what they're running here in college let's talk about leary for a second alan he has a ridiculously strong arm that's he has a cannon for an arm he will frequently make out routes from the far hash which is nuts Most NFL quarterbacks will not attempt to make these throws, and he hits them with regularity, with frequency. That's something Florida needs to pay attention to. He likes that throw a lot. So he'll be on the far hash. They'll run a deep out route. That's like a 40-yard throw for a 10-yard out, and he will hit that throw. So he's accurate on that ball. He likes that ball. In fact, in general, he likes to throw outside more than over the middle, which makes sense. I think he likes that outside, you know, kind of missile that ball in there. It suits his eye. Uh, The weird part about Kentucky, they are not excelling with the shorter throws. So behind the line of scrimmage and up to five yards, their rates, their their quarterback rating is worse. The deeper they go, the better it gets. So they are excelling as they go down the field. Normally, of course, that's reversed. That's interesting there. A couple of notes on coverages that he excels with. He's done very well versus cover zero and cover one. 
Small sample sizes here versus bad opponents. Keep that in mind. He's been horrific versus cover two man, which Florida has already played some cover two man this season. So look for Florida to incorporate some of that. He's done very well versus cover two and cover three. However, very poorly versus quarter coverage, cover four and cover six. So something to keep in mind there. He's done very well versus either eight men dropping. So a three man rush or blitzes. So he's done well on either one of those. But again, inferior opponents. I would take all this stuff with a significant grain of salt. What is sustainable with all that stuff being said, a lot of speculation outside of where he likes to throw. This is not Kentucky is allowing a lot of pressure in the backfield. How much do you ask more than UF has allowed this season? Take that in for one second. You heard the murderers row that Allen threw at you. Kentucky is allowing more pressure in the backfield than Florida is. And Florida is allowing a lot. That is a major weakness of this Kentucky team. Lastly, of course, as we mentioned, this is a balanced offense. One of the best things about them, you can't just rely on targeting one receiver. They throw to them equally. They will also throw the ball to Ray Davis, and they use both of their tight ends. They're lightly targeted, but they will throw to both of them. We saw Kentucky do this to us last year, which means when you're on defense, you can't just say, this is the guy on this play. It doesn't work that way. So they do make you defend the entire field in that regard, which is a good feature of the offense. But again, that pressure rate, I think, is the biggest thing on the scouting report that sticks out. The rest of it, you just really don't know. Are they a good running team? Don't know, really. Are they a good passing team? They can be, but really inferior opponents. But that pressure rate, I think, will hold up. That's a number that is not encouraging. If you're a Kentucky fan for Florida, it could be a key to the game. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I haven't of course paid much attention to Kentucky because they haven't been, we haven't picked them. They haven't been on anybody's radar. They had a lot of success with Cohen two years ago with Will Levis came back to earth last year. How much is Cohen worth in this offense with Leary? Are they a good fit? Their offensive line was bad last year. Is it still bad? Seems like that's a possibility. And I'm interested to see how our defense does against them because uh, when you play, as you said, with to maximally punish a team, that's an aggressive stance. And if you get beat with the just a couple big plays, are you dooming yourself to really potentially lose the game because you got they got over the top of you a couple times and their offense is, you know, our offense is not able to even keep pace with that. So it'd be interesting how aggressive Ham is and throttling down Kentucky, right? If you can put them in some bad down and distances and you let, and they turn over the ball, then obviously you're in a much more advantageous position. So be interesting to see how we handle them. Yeah, it will be. I think game plan wise, a couple things I think coach ham can count on is that they've struggled with simulated pressures. Ham is a master so far at simulated pressures. I think he's got to look on the tape and think, I like what I'm going to be able to generate here. If I can get Kentucky into obvious passing situations, I think I can give them fits with how I bring my pressure packages often only having to send four, which I think is helpful. Uh, I think Florida should be able to expect to control Kentucky's running game. Uh, This is largely due to how well Florida has done containing the run this season and also Kentucky's own struggles in the run game. Despite their numbers looking nice, if you look on film again, it's a lot of like, it's a lot of plays that don't go anywhere as evidenced by the fact that they have an absurd 46% contact at the line of scrimmage. Florida, by contrast, is at 34%. Kentucky has not played good opponents. 46% of their run plays, there's immediate contact at the line of scrimmage. 
on film backs that up. So I think they can expect to be able to hopefully control the run game there. That's going to be important. And then ultimately, really against Kentucky, Allen, you just said it about last year. You have to make this Kentucky team have nine or 10 play drives if they want to score. If you want to score on us, you got to have a drive. We cannot allow you to take a, a 60-yard touchdown on a run or pass and steal easy points because this team typically is their own worst enemy in that case. They have too many flaws to be able to do that. They are not going to consistently move the ball down the field on you. I think Florida has to like their matchups given all those scenarios, but Florida this season, Allen, has been prone to the big play. Mm-hmm. They've been prone to the big play. They're going to have to make sure they limit those. You can probably give Kentucky one, maybe even two, right? Maybe 14 points off big plays, nothing else. You can live with that, right? But you have to be careful not to allow them to hit these plays at the rate they want to hit them. Uh, But I think in general, I think Cam looks at the film and thinks, if we do our jobs here and we're in the right scheme, there's a lot that favors us. And on top of that, I think he gets a chance to mix a lot of stuff in. It's hard to know whether... Florida's going to be better off in zone or man in this game, but I think he'll mix that in and find out early on. So I think this game will be more of a testing game than the Tennessee game, where Tennessee was like, it's clear, it's well-documented what they're doing. This Kentucky team's a little different. I think he's going to be the first DC that gets to go in and try to put the blueprint together of how to stop this edition of this team, which means he has to allow himself to have more flexibility with like, let's try this. If that doesn't work, I'm going to go here more of a built-out rubric of what happens early on to see what they are not responding well to. So this will be a little bit of cat and mouse, I think, at the start, rather than this is definitely the meta, I'm totally doing this kind of game plan, which for me is really exciting, right? As a fan of football, you love to see stuff like that. This is where all the creativity comes in. How does it happen? What do we do? What works for us? What doesn't work for us? Do we get off something if it's not working? Do we find something that Kentucky just cannot deal with and, and just put the pressure down the entire game? I can't wait to see it, but I do think Florida has things on film they're going to like about their matchup versus Kentucky. So, yes, playing like a more conservative back-end zone, which we haven't, you know, is not our calling card necessarily. Do you expect them to do that a lot if Kentucky's just unable to run the ball? Oh, I think so. And I think in general, Florida played a lot of zone in this in this game against Charlotte and possibly prepping for that. A ton of zone was played. We played very few man snaps. We could have played more. Now, part of that's you got a running quarterback. It's better to play zone. Uh, but I think Florida's going to be comfortable playing man versus Kentucky in general. I just think they're going to try to mix it up more. Uh, Larry's the guy with the big arm. Obviously, if he knows you're in man pre-snap, they like to take those deep shots. And I think Ham's going to try to make sure they don't know in pre-snap exactly what they're in. And that's going to be the cat and mouse game. If you're if you're Kentucky, you want to send a guy in motion, see if we follow. Does Ham have a guy follow only to then play zone behind? Like how far is Florida willing to go? So I think Florida starts simple and says, hey, I like what we do. Nothing about Kentucky makes me want to come out of how my style of defense works. I'm good with man 40% of the time. I'm good with zone behind that. I'm good with sim pressures. Unless they prove to me that I should alter my own base defense, I should feel comfortable that my base tactics will work versus them. I think that's where he's going to start, and then we're going to see what happens. So that's going to mean classic split safety. Florida might play zone on one side, man on the other, bring the safety down to help against the run. All the stuff that we've seen featured in this defense, I don't think he's going to alter any of that. But I think he's going to be ready to have some tactical deployments to see if he can't put the finger on something Kentucky's struggling with. Right. With our inexperience in the back end, I have a feeling that Kentucky's going to hit something big. You talk about Leary's big arm, capable receivers. They get something blocked up right. We miss a handoff or something. I think the real compelling thing is are we going to punish them, turn the ball over, strip sack, fumble? I think we'll be able to get pressure on the quarterback. And 
does Leary get a little gunslingery and throw us one or two? Again, Florida's not turned the ball over, hasn't created turnovers at a high rate. That's actually somewhat encouraging that they've been this defensively dominant without, you know, using turnovers to do so and stopping drives. So, um, yes, I think this could be a really interesting game for this defense, and they could give up some, but also create some havoc on their end too. All right, defensive personnel for for Tennessee for Kentucky uh, linebacker Trevin Wallace already creating some stuff. Five tackles for loss, three and a half sacks, eight pressures. Defensive tackle Dion Walker, one and a half sacks, 12 pressures, and safety Zion Childress, uh, very effective um, in the passing game. Uh, this is a unit that's interesting. Um, you know, Kentucky's played solid defense for a long time under Stoops. I don't know. Is that the impression that you got that they're still a solid unit after watching them? I think what's important is they're going to be a solid unit versus Billy Napier. Uh, their style of defense is not my favorite style of defense. The numbers are going to look really good. Here we go again with the numbers that look really good, right? So they're number 14 in opponent yards per play, which is great. They're number two in opponent points per play. That's fantastic. fantastic yeah. They're number 92 in opponent third down conversion. Well, that's interesting because Florida is not good at their down conversion. We're bottom third of the country. So what gives there? That's an interesting matchup to look at. They're number 20 in opponent red zone scoring. Not encouraging for Florida. Number seven in opponent yards per rush. Not encouraging for Florida. Number 12 in opponent yards per pass. 53rd in sacks. 71 in INTs generated. Success rate, though, this is what matters more, I think reveals the true story of the defense, and that's that they're middling. Overall, they're 47th. Standard downs, 42nd. Passing downs, 56th. Passing plays, 52nd. Running plays, 40th. So unlike Florida, which is top, top end, this defense is fine, which to me is a Stoops defense at Kentucky. Again, oftentimes the traditional numbers look good for Stoops' defenses. In reality, what is a Mark Stoops defense? It is a defense that keeps everything in front of them. It's very safe. They play a ton of zone. Man this year is just 18%. Pressure rate's just 12%. They just keep everything right in front of them, make tackles, and let you be your own worst enemy. This is a really good strategy versus Billy Napier's teams. We saw it last year versus AR in Florida. If you stop Florida's running game, their passing game is generally their own worst enemy. And Florida's relatively easy to zone because we run all sorts of stationary routes, hitches, right? Routes that are easy to cover in zone. We generally don't two-on-one vertically. All the things that I think Florida would be well to do, we don't do. So this Kentucky defense can be hurt by other offensive styles, especially styles that force them to go into man because they don't really want to play man. That's not their personnel. But Florida's not a team that forces you to go into man. And Kentucky, if they can stop Florida's run, like they did last year, can play their base packages how they want to. So this is going to be a premier matchup in this game. What does Billy learn from last year? Is he able to produce better offense out of Florida versus Stoops, where Stoops really stymied him last year? That led to the whole AR mental break game, right? That's how bad that got for us last year. Uh, what's different this year? And I think that's going to be a really interesting matchup as well, our offense versus their defense, because their defense on, on on film or on paper is not scary, but it should be scary because of what happened last year. Okay, special teams advantage Kentucky. Penalties and turnover margin, kind of a push. Time of possession margin advantage UF. UF our Kentucky is scoring quickly on a lot of these things, so that would lead to not a big time of possession. All right. Other notes here, 
at least as far as we know, again, limited information on Monday. Seems like uh, Micah Mazuka suspended, should be back, I think. Um, Kingsley, Billy said, was questionable. Um, and I don't know if that's him being cagey or that's real. And I didn't hear anything about Trey Wilson or anybody else. So you'll see some of this information um, before we do. And you know, midweek when they like to release things, but that's as far as we have right now. All right. Game prediction time. Keys of the game. Why don't you go first? All right. First key to the game for me as an overarching key is Kingsley playing. If Kingsley doesn't play, I'm projecting Florida to lose. I mean, I said he's our second most important offensive player. I'm going to put my hat right here with it. If he doesn't play, we're taking an L outside of that on offense, Florida, and forget about my own preferences. I'm, I'm just I'm going to keep living in the world of Billy. This is the offense he runs. I'm Billy. What do I do looking at how I run offense to create stuff? Well, I have to expect that Kentucky is going to bring much more pressure against me than they do other teams. Last year, they brought 31% pressure. They married that with dropping 8, 22% of the time. So it's a barbell strategy. We're going to pressure you far more than we normally do. And we're also going to drop eight because we don't think you can pass. And we're comfortable with our three guys getting home. Which means essentially... Kentucky's going to play a ton of seven guys in the box, but that's often going to be with something that Stoops does really well where he puts that defender, and we've seen Florida do this. He puts a defender on either side, whether it be nickel or a linebacker, in what I call conflict. He's playing both run and pass. He's splitting the difference between a receiver and a right or left tackle, and he's going to keep his eyes in the backfield. In fact, most of Kentucky's defenders last year kept their eyes in the backfield all game long. They were, able, they were rallying up, helping on the run, and they're able to play defense against the pass. Now, we don't have AR this year, so that won't be as heavy as a focus, but that is what Kentucky does with their zone defense. It allows their defenders to keep their eyes in the backfield and play both run and pass, which means Florida needs to, A, design plays and formations to get them into man defense, punish them when that happens, and B, you have got to attack that conflict defender. You cannot allow a defender to comfortably play both the run and the pass versus you without taking advantage of his role. He has the hardest role on the field. You have got to punish that guy with your route combinations and with how you run the ball and with your play design to maximize your yardage there. If Kentucky has their way with those conflict defenders, Florida is going to have a long day. So on offense, what does this mean for Florida? I talked about it earlier, talked about the matchups. I think as always, it's reductive to say Florida needs to be able to run the ball well to win this game. That is seemingly a layup, right? So without that being said, I think the key to this game is very simply going to be third down conversions because if Florida is doing all these things that I just mentioned, that's going to turn into actual third down conversions in this game. That's where you're going to see it. If they're not doing these things, it is not going to turn into conversions. I don't think Florida has to be at 50% in this game to win this game, but I think if they can get to, let's say, 41%, which is a nice day at the office, right? Not 40, but 41, a touch better. Then I think Florida has enough on offense to probably score 20 to 23 points in this game, which should be enough to win on the offensive side. So for me, 41% third down conversion rate, right? Not amazing, but good enough. And on defense, I think for the defense, it's explosive plays. That's something we talked about earlier, right? I think you have to allow three plays or fewer of 20 plus yards. And I'm going to say only one big play for like a touchdown. It's like one big, I'll give you one big bomb. You can have one over the top touchdown. You can have something else that you get, but you can't have more than that. All right. I'm tempted to say turnovers. I hope you're going to say that, but I'm going to say limit the big plays and you can get one, you get one and only one big touchdown play 
nothing more than that. We can't have two. We can't have three. We can't absorb that many touchdowns in this game. So that's what I'm going with. Yeah, I'll start with the defense. That is exactly what I wanted to say is that, again, I don't like this stat because it feels kind of fluky whether you get them or not. But two-plus turnovers from the defense, and I think that will tell the story a lot of ways, and that's going to be how aggressive are you able to be with uh, pressure versus not giving up big plays on the end. Uh, back end, like you said, I think if we get hit with too many big plays, we're going to lose as well. And I'm in lockstep with you here on this third down conversion. Uh, this has to be like where we are solid. If we are as terrible as we were against um, Charlotte, we're going to lose the game badly. Um, I'll just join you. 41. Let's do it. We'll we'll stake out a weird corner here. I like it. Why not? Let's hedge it right there. Number 41, a big number for this game. All right, your prediction. Man, I've gone back and forth in my head on this a lot. I do think this game is going to be very competitive. Um, the fact that it's not at Florida gives me a lot of pause, but I kind I just continually think Kentucky's a little bit fraudulent. I don't know if that bears out. But we I, thought that last year. We were right and we still took an L. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so this is going to be very very close. I'm going to say Florida 20, Kentucky 17, and at least one of those scores is essentially a defensive score, like either an actual interception return or get you really close or something like that. Yeah, Florida has the best unit on either team in this game, which is the defense. Florida has question marks on special teams, tremendous question marks on offense. Kentucky doesn't really have question marks to the same factor we do. At least yet. Uh, they're unknown, but like they have, they have their own question marks. Like they're pretty much, you can kind of see what they are. They can score on you on offense. They have explosive plays. They'll turn it over. Their defense does what they do. They don't have this elephant in the room of like, will Florida's passing offense just completely disappear and be unable to convert anything more than five yards, right? If so, Florida's going to lose. So it's like, can you predict if Florida can do that? No. You can't predict that. That's why it's unpredictable. So I hate even trying to forecast this game, which is why I went to great lengths to give you so much contextual data to say something's going to happen along the lines of what we've laid out to know which version occurs in this one-time game scenario is anyone's guess. I love Coach Ham. I'm going to ride with the alphas of Florida's defense, taking Florida to another win. I think they know they've got to be the breadwinners for this team. I think they're up for the task. That means Graham Mertz needs to do what he's been doing. Don't turn the ball over. Florida's got to find a way to rock fight this thing to a victory. Um, and I think that is what can happen. I love your scoreline there. I think it's going to be a tight, nervy, weird game. I'm going to go 21-20 Florida in this game. I think there's a world where Florida holds Kentucky to almost nothing. I just have concerns with Florida's offense doing what it did last year. Bad field position, short defenses. They get a big player too, and the score goes here. But I'm really tempted to say... Florida wins this game 21-10. I think that's a very realistic situation. Uh, and that 21's mythical. It's probably more like four field goals to be like, you know, a weird number like 19. But 21-20, one-point game, close game. Uh, I think a lot of weird stuff can happen in this one. Really hard to predict. And again, I will be disappointed if the defense gives up outright 20 points to this edition of Kentucky. I think it's far more realistic they're held at 10 or under. But just given how Florida plays football... It feels right to let this game be really right. close. For and Florida reason. needs to win at least one of these Kentucky or South Carolina games. And so 
it'd be nice to get this one in the bag. This is a winnable game, at least from this vantage point. We'll see what happens when they get on the field. Oh, definitely winnable. And again, like I said, if, if we had a more predictable offense, I would confidently predict Florida to win this game by that margin. I just don't think Kentucky can really score more than a fluke touchdown and a field goal on this defense, but there's more to football than just playing defense. And so we got to see what happens with that. All right, let's do the rest of the week five slate here. Number 10, Utah at number 19, Oregon State, who's favored by three. Man, oh man, this feels like the magic runs out for Utah unless they get their players back. I think Oregon State at home, tough opponent in the first place, took a tough L last week. They're going to be looking for validation against a Utah team that I think is weakened. Three-point line is tricky, uh, but I'm going to take I'm going to take Oregon State here to get this job done. I'll join you there. I think on the road is going to be a tough thing for Utah. All right, and what Fox is telling me is the game of the year Number eight, USC, favored by 21.5 at Colorado. <laughs> I'm surprised to see a 21.5 point line here. I know that higher? USC's defense, yeah. I mean, Oregon just beat them by a million. Okay. And again, USC's defense is suspect, but Colorado's offensive line is, is not a power five offensive line. So I'm taking USC. I'll join at USC, although I would not be surprised if this is around the 20 point line that Colorado is able to score enough. All right. South Carolina at number 17, Tennessee, who's favored by 12 and a half. Are you a believer in Spencer Rattler against this Tennessee team? So I think Tennessee, obviously, as we know, has some issues. And we know they can be scored on. I'm going to take South Carolina. This number's too big for me. Yeah, way too big for me. I think this will be a close game. Um, although I could see Tennessee putting it together against the South Carolina defense. We'll see. All right, number one, Georgia. Only favored by 14 and a half at Auburn. That feel fishy to you? Here's their first real test, right? Uh, obviously, Auburn playing decent on defense. Offense is a dumpster fire. I firmly believe that Georgia's been treading water, waiting for a moment to be fully focused and all in. They have issues, but I think this is a game where they 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 take care of that 14 and a half point line. I'm going Georgia. All right. Number two. I'll, I'm going to join you there. I was Sorry, I'm say, what are you yeah. doing? Okay. Sorry. All right. All right. There you go. Already on to the next thing here. Number two, Michigan favored by 18 at Nebraska. Michigan, very slow start last week. This is, again, their first, quote, real game. Must be mm-hmm. nice when your first real game is at a Nebraska team that struggled to win last week. Michigan's sort of like the old school Bama right now. They boa constrict you out of the game and they beat you by a lot at the end. I mean, mm-hmm. Nebraska on offense is so pitiful. Michigan has a nice defense. I, I don't like this, but I'm going to go Michigan. I'll join you there in Michigan as well. I think we're <laughs> locked up here uh, with all the same picks. We'll see how our week is. But I, I could see Nebraska keeping this close for a while, but eventually Michigan pops enough big plays. I think it's, I mean, Colorado scored on them, so Michigan will be able to as well. All right. Texas A&M favored by seven at Arkansas. How, who are you feeling here? This is, this feels like a game that Arkansas is going to win. It just I'm getting those vibes. It's like AM kind of feels pretty good. They took care of an Auburn team that's not very good. And I'm gonna go with that then. I get seven points and I get Arkansas. I'm gonna take it. Oh man. Two losses in a row for Arkansas. How are they feeling? Takes AM building momentum. I do not trust either of these two teams, but I'll take AM. I hate that pick. Okay. Number twelve, Alabama, favored by fourteen and a half at Mississippi State. These little these little halves here. Fourteen and a half a couple times. Yeah, this is, again, Bama, really a hard team to predict with their issues on offense. Mississippi State's defense, I just don't think they can do enough. This game feels like it's going to be, you know, 30-13 to or something. I'm going to take Alabama. 
I don't love this number. I wish it was smaller and I would feel more confident in Alabama, but I'll take them there. All right. Number 11, Notre Dame favored by six at number 17, Duke. Game day headed to Durham. I love it. Duke is a KG football team. Are you a believer? KG. I think they're a quality squad for sure. I mean, I think Notre Dame, however, is not facing the extremely talented defense of Ohio State. Notre Dame has good talent. They are not in Ohio State's talent level. and Now they face a Duke team they are far more talented than. I think that will carry the day for them. So I'm going to take Notre Dame. I like Duke to keep it close. Uh, Inside six there. I'll take Duke. Love it. All right. Oh, I love this matchup here. Number 24, Kansas at number three, Texas, who's favored by 17. I can't trust Texas. Mm. That I know for sure. I think Kansas way outgunned talent wise here, way outgunned. It's an honor for them only to be down by 17 in this matchup on paper. I like the road team here though. I mean, Texas is, is just, they're, they're just not trustable yet for this big spread for me. All right, I hate that you picked Kansas there because I really wanted to pick Kansas. So I'll, I'll do it anyway. I love this Kansas team. I think they're really fun. They've beaten Texas a couple times, yes, actually. Yes, they have. They're, they're not afraid. That's a big part of it. All right, put me on there. Number 13, LSU, favored by two and a half at number 20, Ole Miss. This is a really fun one. Can Ole Miss bounce back? This is this is hard. I mean, I don't. No one knows who LSU is, and Old Miss with just a really that was really a tough look for them. They're at home now. This would be a. This is one of those games as a coach. I think you really want because you lose to Bama. What's better to get your fan base re-energized than beating LSU the next week? Like you're instantly like back in, and obviously the SEC West is wide open. Mm-hmm. So if you're Old Miss, this is a huge this is a huge game for you. I really don't know what to think. I mean. I two and a half. It's like if LSU wins, they're probably going to win by a field goal. I'm going to have to stick with LSU just because I just because I'm an idiot. I don't know. I I don't. I hate it. This is brutal. Since it's under three, I have to take LSU here. I think. Yeah, it's but I don't too, like it either. It's too close. I agree. man, we were together on almost all of these, so we'll see how that shakes out. Yeah, why not? Sometimes you got to do it, right? All right, week five bets from Daytona Steve. After taking some L's last week, he's got UF on the money line at Kentucky. That's our guy right there. We do too. You and I both picked the UF win at Kentucky. Hopefully that all aligns. Washington minus 18 at Arizona. 25 bucks there on that one. He's got the unders parlay because low scores are better in golf, he says. And it's the Ryder Cup week, so he's focusing on that. He's got Clemson, Syracuse under 52.5. Illinois, Purdue under 52.5. USC, Tennessee being South Carolina under 61, 10 bucks there to win 60 bucks. If you want to play the all unders and the Ryder cup specials. Now this is what launched Daytona Steve sort of into GNFP fame. He came out with his first ever segment and he just crushed it. He hit like all of his parlays smoked the golf stuff. So here are the Ryder cup specials, top point scorer, Hovland 10 bucks at plus 1100 to win 110. And then of course his boy, uh, I can't even pronounce his last name correctly, which he'll be, he'll be sad, but it's yeah. Shoffley, uh, 10 at plus 1400 to win 140. So you got Shoffley and you got Hovland and that both of those pay off handsomely. If you get either one of them to win, then he's got USA winning by one to three. So one to three matches. 
and it's going to be 40 bucks at plus 400 to win 160 <laughs> and then he's also going to hedge with Europe winning by 1 to 3 at $10 at plus 450 to win 45 wow, so hedging himself out for a net gain of 115 there if the USA does in fact win so those are Daytona Steve's bets and if for you would the like, upcoming week if you'd like to fade all those picks feel free to would have been a great strategy last year. We all have been really rich, actually. All right. Any other items, Alan? I don't think so. Let's shut this sucker down. All right. Hopefully, we're back after a very inspiring victory against the Wildcats. I was attempted to use their original lingo there from Big Homie, but be a little more respectful here if you're any Wildcat fans listening. Uh, thanks to Gator Nation for listening. Hopefully, this is a really fun week in Florida football. We'll see you guys soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.